all started, right? Like that's that's what they want to know. They're like they just say it to themselves. Did you feel that? Did you feel the energy change? Did you feel that shift in the energy? <laughs> and then they came down here. Yeah, I like vibes. Yeah, um, I mean, I, some of these so guys you, need to be posting their their diet and their their activities all during the day. If they're if you're going to say, did you feel the energy shift? You need to be saying what you've just done in the last hour. Did you just go to the toilet, mm. <laughs> eat food earlier? Did you eat less of satin and most, you know, like, did you sleep well last night? It's like, did yeah. the sun just come out from behind the clouds? You know, it's like, a, yeah. it's probably more something that than you've sensed it, sensed it, sensed the energy shift online. It's just, uh, it just makes me laugh because that's yeah, the kind of thing. That's my brain when I was ruining the vibe now with this. But that's my teenage brain. So you're ruining the vibe. I think I can laugh at it though because it is was me, you know that that's kind of stuff. Mm. That yeah, I'm guilty extreme too, yeah. woo, but uh, so you know it's funny when people who who actually should probably know better. But I think it's partly the I don't know. There's some there's this weird pendulum that happens when as soon as guys get hard into ec- fitness, exercise, weightlifting, that kind of stuff, they just swing to this like esoteric thing at the same time. It's very weird. <laughs> I mean, they just they just try to do both at once. It's like they have to fill in each other. They have to complete yeah. each other. <laughs> esoteric, yeah, someone, esoteric, bro, you complete me. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, um, there's masturbation, bro, at the moment. Did you see him? Oh, boy. So he, yeah, uh, tell me about it. Do we want to go here? or Sorry. <laughs> if, you, if you want. I don't like <laughs> to talk about things I'm not an expert on, so, you know. I'm not even an expert on this. So he was saying, and let me just bring it up here because I was looking at it before. Here we go. So his name is The Conqueror. I fapped at work. And you know how they do the line spacing. So they space out, like you'll do one statement and then you'll skip oh, yeah. a line and do the next statement, just for impact. I fact at work, I told my girlfriend, I was disgusted by myself. This habit took over. So he's not just fact at work, he's consistently doing it. <laughs> he's telling his girlfriend. I had it. I know. Honestly. Where do they grow these people? And then he, and then he said, I had no control over me. I tried to quit. I kept failing. And those two sentences uh, together, of course, until I kept trying, failure is inevitable for change. Learn from it. If you really struggle, DM me. One year free now. So he's doing a course for a year on how not to masturbate at work. I don't so know if it's a troll or not, to be honest. Somebody now has to tell their own girlfriend, oh, sorry, I just DM'd a guy who wanted to work today. I'm disgusted <laughs> with myself. So he tried to quit. It does sound maybe, if it's not, but it's so important to start. There's some internet law that somebody made, didn't they, that things that they're so, uh, you can't tell the difference between trolls and real things now. It's so ridiculous. If it's, it's real. Possible, yeah. If it's real. Then, which I, I doubt, but if it is, two more ridiculous things, maybe well, it's real. He's, no, I think what it he's is. saying it is, seems just genuine. when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. It's appropriate language, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I pulled me back in. I like how it's a consistent thing he's done. So it's, it's not just like, oh, you know, I just did it once. You know, I feel bad about it. I won't tell the missus. It's like he was struggling with this for just like ages, you know? Like, also, what's his job? <laughs> I'm guessing you, you know, being an office, office worker, these are disturbing revelations. They really are because oh, it no, makes you think, it. well... He's, is he doing it in his open <laughs> air cubicle, his open plan, well, or is he going I, sneaking I think, off to like a private area toilet? He doesn't specify where he did it, but you would have to imagine, you know, it's it's probably going to be a toilet. It, it would have to be. Like, where else? He could be in it. What if he's like a dentist or something? Yes. You know, he just puts the <laughs> stuff, he locks them oh. in position and it's just round the back of them, you know? Need to check the mirrors <laughs> next time in the dentist. <clears throat> yeah, that's for sure. So get this, he's got 
433,000 views. This is a guy with 150 followers, 160 oh. likes, and very appropriately, 69 bookmarks. So uh, <laughs> there you go. He knows something I fucking clearly do not put it that I way. Know, so I, maybe. I think, but yeah, he's the, the interesting thing is he has the girlfriend. That's the interesting thing here. Because he's not like I know. A, so strange. It's not like a, yeah, so sounds like it would be an addiction if you had a girlfriend. If you're like assuming that, you know, yeah. assuming that you've, yeah. Because this guy, for his 69 bookmarks, he, he's not just running on a six or a nine. He also has, he can create the whole 69, but he's choosing to <laughs> fix himself at work. Yeah. 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 After a furious struggle. But, I, you know, maybe he's going to do a roaring trade. Who knows? Um, you know, I would not be surprised. If he wants and to do I'm it, I'm reconsidering free. using the toilets at work now, to be honest. I'm never going to yeah. fucking do that again. If he wants <laughs> to do it guilt-free, he should just get into chaos magic, and then he can just do that, and it can be when he's casting his spells. He just needs to look at his little symbol as he does it, right. and then he can just say he's right. just, yeah. you know, he's, uh, he's maging. He doesn't need to think he's fucking. He's maging. Yeah, the, the height of orgasm. He can visualize the sigil and uh, exert his... I'm just going to pop to the bathroom and get cast a spell for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's... Clearly, we're, we're, maybe we're doing that wrong. Anyway, I don't want to go there particularly. But I, I just thought it was would, funny. That's why we record this yeah. without the video. I'm doing it right now. Nice. Nice. <laughs> would you like, like me to speak in a sultry tone without help? <laughs> no, I'm DMing this guy. Thank you for saying <laughs> it. How do you do that? I need help now. But if, it's, oh, if the guy's trolling, Christ it's an amazing almighty. troll. So it's a great troll. So like, uh, if he's got that many people it listening, is. If and, it uh, is. We're, we're talking about it, it's good. It is good. He's done well. You know, I'm just not sure. He could be the elaborate troll. DM me though. The DM me makes me sound like he's wanting a laugh of the comments, you know. And he's going to post <laughs> make a, some sort of thing about it later. The craziest thing. Yeah, it's like a it's like an art project of some kind, uh, an interaction. At least he's on Twitter. If he's on Instagram, we'd have some kind of video at the moment. I talk. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of people this could be. One guy, Soilbra. I don't know if you ever followed him. He was he was no, quite no. good at doing this kind of thing. He'd uh, he'd troll people in in this way. It could be yeah. even the name, even the name is trolling. Yeah. It is, yeah. The Conqueror has paid for it. Anyway, yeah. Well, you know, uh, maybe through the frame of masturbation or not, it's up to you. We can talk about um, today's topic, which is going to be talking about the difference between doing and thinking. And I I think it's like one of those basic bitch seeming topics but actually when you dig down into it there's there's a lot to it it's kind of one of those things that, that people say like oh what are you talking about man like i know the difference between uh, thinking and doing man but very often you know it's one of those things we we say is obvious but we don't really behave like it is we don't fully understand the implications but i, I was thinking we do have a lot of new followers recently not a lot but a lot for us and what, what i wanted to start with is maybe something a little bit different just to give context, so so Kevin, can you tell us what what is a bio individual and what does he want from life? And the reason I'm asking this, and it doesn't have to be a he, it could be a she or a zer or whatever. So so just just to contextualize a conversation, maybe I think sometimes that gets missed. So if we start with what is a bio individual, what is like the point, and then we can start talking about uh, the difference between doing and thinking. Just to give, uh, I suppose, a context to people that uh, may not get it initially. Well, you want to give some bio... thoughts on that? I know you do, because I know you love giving thoughts. So I've got my own um, thoughts, but we, you know, we can start with. They're you. just happening to me, and I just open my mouth. Thoughtings. So, bio individual. The phrase comes from uh, Christopher Hyatt, some of his books, and 
we were using it kind of inspired by that, but in, a, in our own way also as well. So there's the two parts, bio-individual, bios, biological, individual, uh, I'll get to. But basically the idea is that you have to take responsibility and control for your own whole mind, body, emotions, spirit, system, however you want to call it. And everybody is going to be different in some way, but you're being mostly you in the beginning, you think you're in complete control of your life and in control of your organism because we're just blobbing to ourselves in our mind, in our minds and our words in our head. But then after a while, if you start trying to really change yourself or to make things up and you'll find that you are controlled mostly by emotional reactions, phys- physiological reactions, the things just kind of happen by themselves. You're basically just a fleshy robot. You're not as in control as you think you are. You don't have as much free will as you think. You say you're going to do one thing and then something else just happens. There's no kind of connect what you say to others and then what actually happens. So then when the next thing is, so when you realize this and then you try to do something about it, you realize you, it's very hard to do something about it because things just keep happening again. So whether you've done physical training or Eastern spiritual practices, you come across this all the time that what you want to happen doesn't happen and you don't have as much control as you think you do. Very hard to discipline yourself in any kind of way. And everyone has their own physical limitations and mental limitations and emotional issues that are uh, controlling them or um, restricting them. And the aim of the bio-individual work is to break through these restrictions to overcome this, to try and get a little bit of, quote, free will. We've talked about what that might mean in other podcasts and have more control over yourself and to change yourself. And the way that we, our basic method is that you have to work on your body at the basic level, but in a conscious, deliberate, intentional way. So it's not just do lift weights and trust your body. It's not that kind of stuff, but it's also not hyper-intellectual, rationalizing everything, reading millions of books and doing nothing with them on the opposite end. And it's also not just sitting wallowing in your feelings and your emotions and uh, just wasting your time with that stuff. So what we want to do is uh, you, the person, so this is where the individual, the bio-individual comes in, is wants to take conscious control over your, over directing your, how you react to your emotions, because obviously they're deeper, older, stronger than your thinking brain. So most of the time we're just being bounced around like pinball, like a ball in a pinball machine based on emotional reactions and everything all the way back to genetics, the geography of the place you live in, all these things. So the goal is to kind of grow that little part in you that can change things and take control of yourself that everyone has, most people have biologically, but you need to develop it. It's not going to happen by itself. So the techniques we've used, Christopher Hyatt has one set of techniques and he calls it radical undoing. We've both done that in the past. It's kind of related to Reich, uh, William Reich's therapy. Many other techniques, some of them spiritual practices, uh, like Alt does meditation, various other body-based movement practices. Like I teach things to do with the conscious control of posture. So all of these things are different techniques for the person at whatever stage you're at in your life to take control over your lower selves, let's call them, but without denying the lower selves. It's not like imagining that you're not an animal on a planet with animal problems on an animal planet and uh, trying to have as many, as few delusions as possible and to be as close to seeing the real facts of life that are happening, no matter how it makes you feel and no matter what other people are saying and believing at the same time. So that, again, that's where the individual part comes in. So by the individual, if you're an animal on a planet, you're basically a fleshy robot at the moment, but you, it is possible to change that a little bit 
you know, within reason. We don't know how far it goes. And some people have bigger aims of really transforming themselves into out of this kind of dead end, repetitive species behavior that we're doing. So, but for each person, it's up to them. Usually people just get started in this work because they have some kind of displeasure or pain or problem in their life they just can't seem to solve. And they realize, I can't do it in my head by thinking, I'm just reading. I have to actually do something. But what do I do? So that's where we come in. We're offering ways of doing it. And we're talking about how to do it. And uh, some, we're starting to meet people who are interested in these things too. Perfect. Perfect. Very good. Yeah, I wouldn't add much to it. I think that's very good. I would just say maybe, I just, just um, from a slightly different angle, but really reiterating the same thing. I think for a bio-individual as well, there's uh, an idea of self-mastery and that ties into everything that you're saying. So that's self-mastery in all aspects, not just you know one aspect. So it could be uh, self-mastery of philosophy, a personal philosophy. It could be self-mastery of your nervous system and how it functions. It's really referring to self-mastery of what you are as a total organism operating in, a, in an ecology. And I think that this self-mastery ultimately leads to, I guess, what, what someone like Hyatt would call personal power, which kind of implies maximal flexibility in behavior as much as that is possible for us. Obviously, there's, there's limits to these things. In achieving, but the desired results are also not compulsive. They've been as consciously determined as is possible. And that's also part of the work. And then you, you would like to think that there is a kind of snowball effect with all of this work. All of this work mutually reinforces all the other parts. So it could be anything. It's, it's just kind of like having more. So you, you could have more uh, results of many kinds. It could be more money more success, even, <laughs> I hate saying this, but even more spirituality, even more enlightenment or in as much as that's a valid concept, of course, I understand the, you know, the absurdity of that to some degree, but, but uh, also living, living life well, living it uh, with a sense of joy and uh, less of the negative parts without um, trying to escape the negative parts, not trying to run away from them or not face them or make excuses uh, for them. <clears throat> so that, that's kind of uh, some little bits I would add to your rather excellent uh, explanation. Yeah. So I mean, just thinking who, about this now then. Yeah. So I'll just say the people, I'd talk to that, the people who would be interested in this kind of work are people who are interested in, a broad, in various domains in life. So they're interested in physical stuff. They have some kind of physical ability in something. They're all, you know, they're not, like they also have, they're also smart in some way and they're interested in their own things, but they also have like part of them that's interested in the spiritual things. So it's kind of like, you know, like uh, for young guys, you know, I was, I loved the idea of the Renaissance man when I was young, but I always had no idea what to do with it or how to do anything. And uh, it was just a complete concept. But basically it's that if you're interested in those kind of things where you want to uh, get good in different areas, but also integrate them in some way, but you don't really know how to do it. So you're like, you, you know, you need to integrate yourself as well as improve yourself, uh, but you just, you're kind of struggling. You don't know how to put it together. This is the, this kind of work is for people like that, because that's exactly what we've been doing and struggling with for years ourselves. Christopher, I was the best person I came across for articulating the problem for guys like us. He calls them marginal types. You know, so you're not the you're not the great people. You don't need help if you're the great people, the great individuals. 
but you're also not just like the normal normies, as they say now, in some way. But for most people, current culture, civilization, don't really know how to what to do with it. And usually they have some kind of issues that are that are um, blocking them. So all our work in some way breaks through blocks. There are different ways of doing it, you know, whether it's muscular tension blocks, whether it's emotional blocks, fears of doing certain behaviours. There's so many different techniques you can use, but really it's all directed at the same thing. Getting more freedom in thinking and doing and feeling actually as well, and less restriction. So if you go from a very restricted, repetitive, automated kind of behaviours, whether it's thoughts, feelings, actions, to something more free and more open and more potential and more different possibilities. The earlier you start, the better, because you're not freezing yourself into, you know, digging the ditches so deep (laughs) that you can't get back out of them. But there's benefits from starting older as well because you have more wisdom and you don't fall into some of the silly traps and delusions that young guys inevitably do where you think you're going to be this wise old wizard because you've done a few spiritual practice and all this stuff and, and you kind of can end up denying the physical animal side of things also. So for us, we want to do all of those things. We want to accept all of life and make it as best as possible in the different areas, but without going off to live in a cave. So we're not into that. We want to live in the real world. We don't want to just uh, be monk mode forever and try and keep yourself pure and any of that stuff. You, you, the goal is to live and to, to have fun as well. That's um, an important difference because most people in these circles online, of course, tend to be of the religious type, particularly when it comes to spiritual practices, which is what makes this kind of thing somewhat unusual because in many ways you're reappropriating spiritual exercises which are very often physiological exercises at their core and kind of using them for a different thing or a different kind of context, which is unusual. Not a lot of people do that. So just thinking about everything you said uh, in terms of maximizing all these different scopes of maximizing freedom, and then obviously using this self-mastery, we're going to talk about the difference between thinking and doing something. So self-mastery and the freedom you're creating is primarily aimed at maximizing being able to do things. There's really no other purpose to this work. It's, it's primarily geared towards doing and the abstraction and all the other stuff that goes into it is primarily geared towards maximizing your ability to do which again, from the outset, seems kind of like basic, like I'm not saying anything particularly profound, and in a way I'm not. But you'll find that I think that most other ways of viewing the world are not necessarily primarily concerned with this. And I guess we'll get into why that's the case a little bit later. But I think, uh, you know, it's kind of like how Voltaire famously uh, said that common sense is not so while these things may seem from the outside to be extremely obvious and it's you know not worth my time you know i'm already the genius which is you know what we tend to think it, from a bio individual perspective something that seems very basic when you drill right down into it the difference between thinking and doing you start to realize that um there are really serious implications to go well beyond uh what you initially thought about it. And in a practical sense, the difference between thinking and doing really is a kind of tussle on a number of complex levels. It's not just on one level. This is, uh, it's working on a macro, from a macro point of view about our entire orientation towards life. And then it works on a micro kind of level where you could just be the way that you move or the way that you do something. Like it's, it's on all these different levels, this sort of dynamic tussle between 
doing and thinking. So what I wanted to um, maybe have a think about is in your work, and I'm really interested in this because I, I kind of consider you to be the one that knows heaps about this where I know barely anything. So you're, you're teaching movement in a way. You know, I've done part of your course. I've not been through the whole thing by any stretch yet. But you've also been talking about recently movement combined with thinking, conceptualization, and conscious thought. So I thought maybe a good place to start would be to get some insight from you on how this works. And we can maybe then start to pass out you know, other things from that point of view. So do you want to maybe talk about it? Because I'm genuinely interested in in how that all fits together. Yeah, I think what you were talking about is when I was writing about integrating physical training with cognitive training, is that right? Yes, correct. Yes, and you were talking cool. in particular about physical movement and then also, I, and yeah, I assume that includes thinking. Yeah. So it's something I've been doing anyway as, as part of the technique I've been learning and applying for myself and teaching others for to do with conscious control of posture. It was, it's a very cognitively controlled thing and you're having to understand concepts about um, how mechanisms work and things like this. It's not just feel your body. It's not that kind of body work. But at the same time, you're having to actually physically do things with your movements and, and really do them. And I use video so you can see if people are doing them or not. It's not just how you feel. It's not this kind of slow moving body work. It's quite technical and cognitive. But you're feeling strong emotions while as you do things and you're getting strong pulls on your on your body and stuff. So you you can there's a physical workout aspect to it as well as a cognitive workout aspect to it. So I've been doing that anyway, and I noticed that the benefits of doing it together like this was, uh, and by together I mean at the same time in the same activities. I don't mean doing them both at different times during the day or one after each other. I mean to get together, integrated, integrated, blended together. So I noticed the benefits of that were more than just on the physical side or just the, the cognitive side, the thinking side. There was like it, doing them together did even more than just that. So. For example, I just find myself more able to think clearly, more able to read long stretches of difficult books, more able to, which which I might which which might contradict myself on this podcast, but more able to remember what I'm talking about when I'm talking and during lessons when I'm giving with people. So when I started, I would forget what I was saying because it's quite hard to yeah. think and maintain focus and remember what you just said five sentences ago. Yeah. So obviously, mm -hmm. I still forget things and stuff. Um, but anyway, I found myself going, becoming much more clear in, inside my mind, much less uh, self-talk, just yup, yup, chatter in my head. Uh, the thinking became more functional, more closer to doing things. So because I'd just been training myself to think these things about movements, to think, understand these mechanisms, and then try and get them all to work at one time. And eventually you're just training your mind as in, okay, when he thinks things, when he, def when he mentions objects, you know, elbow, tip of elbow, you know, whatever body parts, he really wants to do something with those parts. And then I'm checking on videos to see if I did them. So eventually you're just training yourself to obey your own commands. So you, in the beginning, you realize you can command yourself all you want. You just won't obey it. So this is obvious in life with, with uh, bigger things. You know, you, I'm going to start going to the gym this many times. I'm going to do this project or whatever. And then they don't because you say one thing and then you do another. But when it actually comes down to just little body part movements, you know, you're in, you're uh, coordinating several body part movements at the same time, and it's movements. You know, it's actually you're moving different parts in different ways, often against antagonistically two parts against one another. When you're doing this, you realize that you, they just don't listen to you in the beginning. You have to train yourself like any other skill. It just they just won't happen. They just happen by themselves. And then not that long ago, I came out. I was looking at some research papers about. Uh, I think it was like in vaguely sports science 
industry. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly what the guy does, but um, I think it's maybe psychology, actually. And uh, he dis- they discovered that they did some experiment where they, they wanted to know, they were trying to improve cognitive enhancement. They were trying to get cognitive enhancement and they were trying different methods. So, what, sorry, what they'd said, uh, what they'd assumed, people used to assume that things like chess, if you were good at chess, it would spill over into other cognitive tasks. So if you're good at really a really good chess player, would be good at thinking in other places because they did all this thinking during chess. So they they tested it. So they they got the chess chess masters. I think it was this is oh, this is quite an old study. This one, and they got the chess masters to uh, obviously they tested them against novice chess novices, and they, obviously the master could remember where all the pieces were on the board compared to the other person. You know, a million times better as you'd expect. But then they did a test where you had to remember where pieces on the board that weren't in inside a game. So it was like a separate from a game. They were just placed in random places, and they had to remember where the pieces were. The chess masters weren't any better at that than the normal person. So they can only, they were, the skill was very specific to playing the game of chess. So in the middle of a game, they could remember where things were because those positions of the, of the chess pieces live and lived inside a game and they had a context and they were in relation to all the other parts and, and they were doing something. They were playing a game. So they were, they remembered them. So then they realized, okay, it just doesn't spill over. It's, it doesn't transfer to other cognitive skills. That's so close a cognitive skill and it doesn't help. You can't get smarter by playing chess. You just get better at chess. So that's, that's, the, that's, no, I'll get back to the physical side. So what the, when they were in the study, so they thought, okay, so they tested, they wanted people to, to, they wanted to improve people to get better at cognitive tasks. And they were looking for something that would transfer to rather than just the activity. So they tested, uh, people were doing like those brain training games, you know, where you do, you know, you get those brain training, training apps where you solve all these little puzzles and stuff. And the idea with those, and that's quite a big industry now, you know, there's a lot of money in that. The idea is that if you do them, you'll get smarter and that will transfer to the rest. You'll be smarter in the rest of your life because you got, you trained your brain in the same way as you lifted weights so the muscle gets stronger. So now in real life, you can pick up the, a rock or whatever. So they discovered, they, so they tested people who were doing just cognitive tasks, like uh, the brain training apps. They tested people who were basically, you know, there was the control group and then the, there was a group where they gave them they combined the cognitive tasks with physical tasks. And what they did is they made us kind of their own version of, they, they used wrestling and dancing. So what you, what the person had to do is as well as the intense physical activity, they also had to, sorry, the control group, I think was people who did a lot of exercise on the side and then did cognitive tasks. So they were like exercising and running and stuff separately. And then they would test them on a, on a third thing later. So what they discovered is if you combine these two things in one activity, a complex mode activity, like uh, they used wrestling and dancing, but it wasn't just wrestling and dancing. It was things where you had to think about the mechanics of where things were, where body parts are going. You know, anyone that's done jujitsu or whatever knows this and dancing. You have to be, especially when you're learning. So before you've automated it, this is the key thing. It's not when movements are just automated and they just happen by themselves. It's not while you're actually thinking about what you're doing. You're struggling, you're figuring things out in real time, but also physically moving around, not just sitting at a chessboard or looking at a screen, a brain training app, clicking things. And they discovered those guys, the skill they learned there transferred to various cognitive tasks. So you could do it, you did something else, you got better at other things that you hadn't trained because you combined the physical and the cognitive in, in this way. So I was like, oh, okay, so this is what I've been doing, but I didn't name it that. I didn't know that was a thing that they're recently discovering, but also, obviously it's a lot older than recent uh, science things. You know, this is like ancient, you know, martial arts, various kinds of uh, combat, obviously the sacred dances, 
uh, various spiritual practices combine these things in different ways, but it's never been taught explicitly. So what I'm interested now is doing it explicitly. How do you deliberately train the cognitive and the physical control, physical performance aspect at the same time together in a way that will make you smarter and more physically capable in general life as a whole? So that's the key thing. It's the as a whole. I'm not interested in getting really good at some specific thing. So you're great when you do it, and then it just doesn't work in some other field. I mean, everyone knows this. You come across this all the time. I'm really good at one thing. Or the fitness guys that are so used to using exact, precise barbells or whatever, then they struggle to lift, to do something that's kind of weird or it's off balance for them or something because they really train themselves into a, into a groove. So my interest, because of all the bio-individual things I talked about earlier, is to is the general improvement that I'm looking for, not the not the specific. But you can't just generally decide to do to get smarter and physically more capable at the same time. You have to have some kind of technique. So for me, it's sitting in front of a video, sitting in front of a camera and doing very precise movements with a postural system and making decisions and seeing if I can translate my intentions and the words in my head, the images in my head into actual movement patterns and then changing the structure and then seeing what all changes come from that. So so. I've just been calling the psychophysical training because you're training mind, body, and emotions at the same time. So just just to finish the the emotions parts are trained because it's not you're sitting around feeling and wondering what you feel. If you're if any of you've ever done an intense activity that involved hard physical work and thinking and making decisions at the same time, you'll know that you're emo- you have lots of emotions when you do this. You have lots of feelings, but you're training yourself to overcome the feelings. So you're just you feel bad, but you do the thing anyway. You feel tired, but you do the thing anyway. It seems impossible, but you figure something out and try and do it anyway. You overcame that restriction that the world seemed to give to you. And because you're in motion and you're using your really, truly integrating mind, body, spirit at the same time, you can overcome things that you didn't think you could. And my method is just that you're doing this in a nice, safe room, but if I have a camera, so how does that transfer to the rest of life? Because you're doing doing movement in a weird way, knocks you off your sense of uh, equilibrium. You might your your part of you feels like you're falling, and that you're in danger. You know, it is dangerous to fall over unexpectedly, but you're having to still do all these different precise movements at the same time and overcome that. So you're training yourself to feel scared or feel bad, but do the thing you've reasoned out in advance anyway to get, follow your plan. You're developing self-development, uh, self-discipline while you're doing this. So what I love about psychophysical training is you're you're improving physical performance because you're bringing a cognitive aspect to it that allows you to make decisions in real time. You're, you're speeding up your, your conscious mind. You're not just relying on it all being automated. You imp- get cognitive enhancement because I said earlier when it's included, the physical training is included, it spills over into other other thinking tasks in a way that brain training apps and things don't, don't do. And... You're getting the emotional emotional control. You're developing your emotional control because you're following a plan and you're able to make it stick to a decision even when it feels wrong because things just feel wrong the first few times and they maybe feel normal there. But either way, it doesn't matter. You can just get yourself to do things that don't feel right because you've decided it's the thing to do. And then the spiritual improvement that I like from this is that you, so you develop uh, you know, the spiritual practices at all want, looking for detachment and things. This would be real detachment because you're not actually detaching from the world. You're in the world detached when you want to do that too. Uh, so all the benefits I've, I had from doing spiritual practices, I get from doing this too. So whether you just have to be wired like this, like a try to combine all the different parts of yourself or integrate in some way to even see this as a possibility. I don't know. 
But I know that all different types of people can learn it. And I've been teaching it to very intellectual people on one hand, very physical people on the other hand, you know, advanced meditators as well. So like all the different types of people, they can integrate themselves by adding in the other things. But it's the same thing I'm teaching to people. You know, you come to play in my playground. It's my, it's my games, but it will help you in the different ways because we're truly in, it's a truly integrated activity rather than, you know, rather than doing them sequentially. You know, it's not just reading books, then going to the gym and then, you know, visiting your girlfriend. You're doing mind, body, emotional activities all together. So not, <clears throat> not bench pressing and reading Nietzsche. It's something a little bit different. So, so just passing this out for a uh, midwit like myself. So I get. I guess what what I'm taking from what you're saying is on a, on a very fundamental physical level. I suppose the implication of what you're saying is that our thoughts are definitely not connected to our physiology, and therefore, in a higher sense, they're not connected to our doing because our doing is literally our movements, if you think about it, or um, the way that we project ourselves in the world. Anyway, so in a sense, the way that we typically do things is very reactive, or at least uh, if, if you don't want to call it reactive, I guess it's programmed, pre-programmed, and it kind of remains mostly under the hood or unconscious. And I know I, I wanted to ask you, because I think it ties into this. So I, I've seen you and someone else uh, go back and forth about flow states, and I know you're somewhat anti-flow states, even though they feel good. So it seems to me that a flow state and this are completely different, even though a flow state gets all the good press. Would that be correct? Yeah. My take now on flow states is that it's, you're just, you're just getting the robot. A flow state is just the robot is working in a pleasant way that you enjoyed. It's still a robot. The thing about flow states is people, I mean, I think the guy who wrote the book flow was clear on this. I, I, I don't remember, but so I'm not blaming him necessarily. I think it's more the people who followed. People conflate two things. They think the flow state is about results. It isn't. It's about experience. It's optimal experience. So you work for a few hours and you felt great. It felt like you're really getting places. Or you just time disappeared. You know, all those things they talk about. I was really in it. That doesn't, it's not the same thing as good results or a good performance. That was the experience was good. So if you've ever done something that was new or a really high level thing that you had to try or at something, there was loads of struggle involved. It wasn't all flow state, obviously, because the performance isn't connected to the experience, not necessarily. So this is, a, this is something I noticed in the posture work as well. People assume if it feels good, it's right. Do a movement like this, oh, yeah, that felt like a god, and they've done it completely wrong or the opposite of what I asked, but it feels right. So they think it's right. So we've got this human thing where we immediately go, feels good is good, feels bad is bad, feels wrong is wrong, uh, feels impossible is impossible. We just do it automatically with our movements. It's really clear when you see it with movements. Move these parts in this way is, okay, yes, I did it. No, you didn't. You did the opposite. Move this part forward from that part. Did it go forward? Yes. No, it didn't. It went opposite. It's on camera. There's no, like, it's objective. You can see this. So flow state for me is, is, uh, is like that. Sometimes you did performed well. Sometimes you didn't, but they're not the same thing. So the other thing is that flow states is, uh, there's like a philosopher named Barbara Montero. She's a philosopher of mind who worked with some, uh, did some studies with um, some physical, some sports people. And they realized that this idea that people are just doing, that the peak performance, peak performers or you know, elite level are just in flow state and they're just doing it and they're not thinking, you know, the, the night thing, just do it. Uh, don't don't think about it. Thinking will interfere. If you think you interfere, you just have to let it happen. You know, the Zen and the art of archery and all that stuff. 
by the way, the Zen book was a mistranslation. Anyway, that's a diff- different issue about just letting it happen. Uh, you probably know more about this, actually. But there's a, yeah. bo- there's a book about that book saying that the guy, the main thing about just letting it happen, don't do anything, just let it happen, was a translation of a word by the, not by the author. He wasn't there that day or that week. And the other person who was translating it chose a word, uh, translated it like that. And that's the thing that's stuck in the West because everybody just wants things to happen by themselves and be lazy and not yeah. do it. It's yeah. not even the original thing that they, that they were being taught there. Somebody will argue about Very this. Common. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, the most famous quote from anything is usually wrong from anybody. Anyway, so the, the, uh, so she discovered, they discovered that actually peak performers are doing quite a bit of thinking, but it's like really quick decision-making. They're not just on autopilot. And this is the difference between midwits and you know the right end of the mid, you know, the midwits meme. On the far right end of the midwit meme, the difference between the, the the elite people is they are consciously, deliberately trying to get better every single time. They're not trying to automate it. They're like, things are being automated all the time, certain movements and actions, obviously, but they're always trying to improve some little bit. They're thinking about some specific thing that they're trying to improve or to prevent. You know, they're always pushing it slightly. And uh, but what mid- so they're not actually in flow state. They're struggling. It's difficult. But midwit, but, um, midwits, or you know, most people, normal people, are going to be in flow state more because it's just automated and it's happening in a good way, but it's not great. You know, it's the difference between good and great. So the the reason she said, so this philosopher, she says, you know, people immediately argue, oh, there's lots of studies showing that if people are made to think, they're given a task of thinking while they're doing something, you know, they were like dribbling a football or whatever, and they had to think certain things when a noise went off and things, and they got bad at it, or they didn't know which part of the foot was touching and stuff because they had to think on the side. The people will say, how can I think when I'm doing things? You know, like, how can I remember my shopping list as I'm doing things? The, those things are true because they were taught, those things were, are very specific because, you know, an elite person doesn't need to know what side of the ball is touching. They're thinking about the next thing, you know. They're thinking about getting round. They're already think, thinking about how they're going to get round the next player. They're not like, oh, I have to be aware of which side of the foot is touching the ball at that time. Talking about soccer. American friends. So she discovered that. Uh, so that. So that's that's not that doesn't really count because that's not like expert behavior. An expert doesn't need to think about those things. Um, but the other thing, when they tested all these things, this to, to demonstrate all these psychology tests that show that people are in, that thinking interferes with doing. How are they all done? They're all done by tested on nineteen-year-old drunk students in a psychology lab who get eight dollars an hour for doing the work. They're not. They don't test it on the experts. Real experts. Elite they take people. 38 year old drunk men that aren't students at all because I could probably do that for $8 an hour. Are you wanting to be in a room with drunk 19 year old students? Is that what this is about? <clears throat> Mate, no comment. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Didn't mean so, to interrupt. So basically, that's, that's, that's it. So the, this idea about don't do it, the idea of just do it, don't think is backed up by studies that aren't done on real experts. They're done on just you know, normal student people who are doing it for money. It's hard to get an actual expert to come and do all these studies in the lab because they're, they're those type of studies in the, in the psychology lab. So obviously they're bigger things to do. And they think, some people think, well, you're okay, you'll feel bad in the beginning, but then I'll feel good later. But some things aren't like that. There's always an element of the struggle, the bad feeling, always, because you're improving it. What is improving? You're going against your current habits. You're breaking through the restrictions. It's all the bio-individual stuff we talked about earlier. Your physical, emotional mental restrictions you're trying to do something that's outside of those or past those and they all resist because you're you know homeostasis system that wants to stay the same for safety and you have to push past it this is what like it's like old carriages carriages deciding you want to do something and doing it even though it feels bad or is dangerous you know it's all it is it's not 
doesn't require some big uh, romantic idea about some you know guy thousands of years ago and stuff. It's it's just simply doing the thing you've decided is the right thing to do, even though you feel bad. Is it? So you can train courage by doing movement exercise, movement practices in a nice, safe environment because you're training your reactions to your bad feelings. So then when you go out in the world, you're now used to reacting in a different way to your bad feelings to just, okay, I feel bad, but I'm going to do this anyway, rather than just curl in a ball or avoid it or and then just start coming up with all these excuses in your head and all these reasons about why and rationalizing about why. But really it was just you ran away from the little fear. So what I discovered with the movement stuff is those fears, they're built from the ground up. If you think about a pit, like of a pyramid with your body, your biomechanics and your structure at the bottom of the pyramid and then, you know, lower, you know, sensations and then feelings and then thoughts and then, you know, higher spiritual intuitions or whatever on the top. You've got to get down and change at the bottom of the pyramid. You've got to get down and change there because it all filters up. It spills over upwards, but you don't do it by automating it. You can't just let it happen by itself. You have to be controlling it guiding it and directing it not controlling is a difficult word for some people but guiding and directing it from the top levels because why have humans got all these higher points of the parts of the brain if we're not going to use them so my disagreement with a lot of the direction of the culture now the counter culture is everybody's going to just looking for all these physical things as a you know the, the whole idea of the Everyone who's interested in vitalism and all this stuff, they're all just trying to find the body and energy stuff that just all happens by itself and they don't need to think anymore. And I just think that's totally mistaken. And the, the goal and the benefit of the psychophysical training is you're integrating all of these things. You're not saying thinking on its own without practical action is useful and you're not saying practical action without thinking is useful or good. And you're not saying emotions and that are, you're not pretending they're not there and denying them, but you're also not reacting to them all and letting them be in charge of you. I mean, they... Can be guide, they are guides, but your brain, your human brain, has grown structures on top of the emotional structures. It wants you to regulate them. It doesn't want you to just do them. So this, it's totally mistaken to just get back in the body and allow your emotions to flow through you. That's like a, a pendulum swing reaction too far the other way from the stuck in your head, rationalizing intellectual guy. So I mean, I understand why people are doing that. They do the two swing to the two extremes, but you, you, it just creates more problems later. You need those guys become very emotional, actually, have control of emotions, which is very easy to rationalize and say, "Oh, I'm improving because I have all these, I feel all these emotions now." Well, some of them aren't good to act on when you feel them. So yeah, so flow state to me is just is that's it fits in that whole this whole realm of uh, judging things by feeling try wanting your feelings to guide everything and then wanting your feeling to judge whether it was good or bad so it doesn't mean that in your life you're going to only do things that are unpleasant and you're never going to do things that feel good and you're not going to prefer pleasure to displeasure obviously so like uh, just to finish i you know people talk a lot about gut feeling and trusting your gut i don't trust my gut i trust my gut feeling in the big things but not the small things but what people do is they trust their gut in the small things. Should I eat this? Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't trust it in any of those things without some kind of objective external validation alongside the subjective side. But in like the big, you know, life purpose things, obviously there's a feeling intuition involved in that. You can't reason your way to those things. You can reason towards them, but not they're slightly beyond beyond that. But anyway, that's my take. Mm. You know, it is true, you know, what you say, particularly about vitalism and uh, these guys online that think that vitalism is just like kind of chimping out at the lowest possible animal level. And this somehow represents just trusting the body, just just let out your bad habits and bad manners in public. That's that's what's vital because you're being held back by good manners. You mentioned that vitalism, I've, I've written about it you know, a lot, actually, too much, really. And um, 
yeah, it's it's just funny how it get it gets misconstrued because you know vitalism is is it's a very real, tangible thing in many ways. It's it's not just this kind of abstraction of well, uh, you know, there was this vital old guy um, for thousands of years ago who threw spears, and you know that's that's vital. And I think that what you're talking about is is far more vital than modeling yourself off some primitive savage, uh, to be honest. And I actually think the vision of what those guys were is probably completely wrong. Probably. Not that I know. There's a few points here that I've just made a few little points because you obviously brought up a lot of stuff there. So there's, there's one thing about a flow state, and you, you mentioned that it was related to safety in particular. So, well, in a primitive sense or a primordial sense of physiology, wants to act in an automated way because it's safe to do so. It's a proven adaptive survival uh, strategy. And it's, it's very interesting because another thing I've been looking at is the inherent uh, fear of catastrophe. And I think Dr. Hyatt came up with this, and that's pretty much where I was drawing it from. But the, the most people act in that very primitive fashion that they're always coming from a place of fear the fear of catastrophe, of missing the tiger or whatever else. So it actually makes the conscious direction of movement and behavior very difficult. The body actually doesn't want to do it because it does have this fear-based thing kind of built into it. And in a way, therefore, it seems to me that the, uh, from what you're saying, and it makes intuitive sense to me, that the power of an act or the power of doing something and that could be the performance of an elite athlete or you know a chess master or the other examples uh, that you use but i guess particularly people who are doing something physical that requires some mental engagement it, it actually your, your success in that doesn't stem from a flow state it actually stems from overcoming the automation in doing something and that's very interesting because in a way, being a bio-individual, that, that's the whole purpose. It's actually breaking down reactivity and automation to maximize your scope of doing. That's pretty much the whole purpose. So what you're describing just in a, I know you didn't describe in this fashion, but at least in the athletic, athletic context is just basically widely applicable to everything we do. So what I wanted to ask just so I can get a better idea. And I'm sure the audience are, are going to want to hear this as well. We both do kickboxing. So I, I know there's mental elements to kickboxing. So if you learn combinations, uh, you learn how to you know, kick or do various other moves uh, in type boxing, you know, like uh, it could be anything. So if, if you were in a session, Muay Thai session, and say you've got the basics down pad, you know how to kick, you know how to punch, you can do some basic combinations. Like, how would you use this then to really push your training? Like, how do you, how do you use it? And if, if you could give like a really practical example of how you would integrate the thinking, the, you know, maybe taking video of yourself, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, I, I just like to hear how you would do that in a session. Like, what does that practically entail? Okay. I'll give you an example of uh, something that I'm going to do, but I haven't yet properly is uh, for the Thai boxing. So when you're in, if you're in, when you learn at the gym, you know, when you're learning boxing, they show you the combinations, then you just copy them. So like they, they'll explain verbally, you know, they'll explain verbally how the, how the combination works. And then you just like, you just stand there, you know, when you just start, you just try and copy what you just saw. 
most people are, seem to be doing it visually. They're trying to feel the movements as the person's doing it, and they're trying to just uh, they're trying to just kind of imitate what they see. And then the guy will say, "No, you're doing this wrong," and then they'll try and do it this the way the guy said. So you've got this external coach just telling them to do things and usually it feels a little bit weird and you do it in the new way, not the way you first did it. And then eventually you get better and you're just kind of, you just start doing things kind of habitually. Things become automated and then some people are better than others. So it's not just talent and uh, effort. Sometimes it's just the way that they've automated it happens to be more productive or efficient than the other people, is my view. I'm not an expert at all in Thai boxing. I'm very new, under a year. So this is like, I'm, I'm applying what I do in the postural work to more intense activity. So just for people listening. Um, so that's how people would normally learn it. To use the way I'm... To, so there is an element of, obviously, cognition in, in fighting, you know, when you're sparring. You are so often are thinking things, you're deceiving the person, you're doing feints and things. You're thinking ahead, what are you going to do next? You know, people do jiu-jitsu, you're thinking several moves ahead and, you know, you're trying to get people in, into certain positions so you can do the next thing. So there's definite thinking involved. And I've heard, you know, jiu-jitsu called human chess, which I think is a great name. But uh, a bit the same thing, sparring and, and, and kickboxing or whatever. You'll notice that you seem to do less thinking the harder you get because you just start just dropping down to the automated things, the, the basics, and then it becomes obvious what, you, where you're, what you're lacking. So anyway, that's how it is normally. So how I would apply the psychophysical training to it would be, I would break it down and go right back to the start. So when somebody shows a combination, well, I, so they automatically say they just throw the jab and then they're, so the person who's learning is trying to get the jab and then the cross. Say, well, what's the jab? They're, as far as they're concerned, the jab is just their hand going straight forward. The guy, and that's all they're thinking about. They have paid no attention at all to the mechanics of how the job worked. Just They're just going by feeling. The guy adjusts them slightly, says to do something else, and then they go by feeling again. And then they're told that that's better. And then they just try to they try to maintain that feeling of the right thing and and then judge whether it was going well by whether it felt well or not. So this is just normal how people behave everywhere, basically. But they will notice when they get a new combination, it's more complex. They're struggling to try to remember it and thinking where all the parts go and where I should be standing. And, oh, I, I was got the hands right, but then he tells you your foot went flying up or something that you didn't even notice you did. So people have experienced all these things normally. I train that in a formal way in the posture movement lessons. So what I, I'm going to do, probably with videos actually, maybe for a private group, maybe it'll be, maybe put it on YouTube, is I'm going to break it down to, well, what is the job? What movements are involved in a job? All the way, like what's your torso doing as a whole? Are you moving the torso in such a way that you are stretching the fascia and allowing it to act like springs? This is a thing that's in my course if anyone's interested. Because as soon as people do one action, one movement, so the job, they automatically just do all their bad habits and they'll carve in their lower back and they'll do all these things, that, uh, throw back their shoulders. They do all these things, most people, they'll do all these uh, habitual things. Not, that's not just the things people do, others also. So rather than start working at the level of the job, there's tons of movements and decisions you've made before that that are all completely automated and out of awareness that lead up to that. So I would just start with that and I would use a video and I would set up small experiments where I would film myself first just doing it the way it feels like it's the right way to do it. Then I would analyze what I see. I would watch the video. I would take still pictures and draw some lines on it and go, okay, so when I do that, I, you know, my habitual way is to rotate my pelvis forward at the top as I do it, creating a curved in back as I do it. My head and shoulders come back relative to this. My chest in the middle thrusts out in the middle as I'm doing this. And I've actually, if I measure the distance from the head to feet, I've actually made myself shorter when I punched. So at what point in the instructions was, make yourself shorter in order to do a job. 
And most people are doing this, by the way, making themselves shorter when they do this. So what's why? They may do the other way and, and crouch down another way or whatever. So there's, you can't have perfect posture doing fighting, just in case anyone's saying things I'm saying that you can't have optimal posture while fighting. There's trade-offs, obviously, if you're going to get good at any skill. There are ways to work with it, get your biomechanical springs working better than others, obviously. So, sorry, this has been a very long answer to, you just wanted a single practice, didn't you? No, 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 no. I just, yeah, yeah, like just how, how would you do it? So, one so last I'm, thing I forgot, sorry. Because I don't want to get I, throat punched, so, by the way. That's why I hunch over. But anyway, yeah. I the mean, most yeah, important thing. I would go yeah. from, which I started with. So there you go. There's my, the powers of my new memory, everybody. You've just seen it in action. <laughs> I said that the start, people just go by imitating, by feeling, by trying to copy what it was by feeling even though the guy usually gives verbal instructions. Some bad coaches will just show them like this and then copy the person to copy. And some people struggle to learn. All my coaches do that. All of them. Not a single one has done anything different, by the way. So the best ones I've had, the best coach I've had is not, it was a a younger guy and he, I think he was an engineer, he's an engineer. So he was thinking in terms of systems systems and uh, the mechanisms and he was very visual. So he was explaining things and he was using mental tools as in like, think of it like this, things that don't exist. Think of there's a line going here, there, and you have to maintain that line vertically. You know, it's like, think it wasn't feel this with your elbow or move this here. It was like these uh, rules, mental rules that you apply to your physical movements. And um, it's exactly why I teach in the posture stuff. You know, you're, it's not about gaining and feeling the body more deeply. It's about a higher level of visuospatial reasoning about where things are and stuff. So you have to explain this in words. And then with words, the person creates images in their head. And then somehow by maintaining the words, instructions, I will do this, I'll do this, and I'll do this at the same time. I won't do this thing, even though I keep doing it, pulling my head down, I won't do that at the same time. And it should, you know, the structure of it should be similar to this image that this guy's explained to me about a mechanical contraption or whatever. The guy was explaining about lasers. Imagine a laser from your groin to the ground and stuff. So, which you can't feel. I mean, if you've got, if you can feel a laser going from your groin to the ground, you know, speak to a psychiatrist, but you can use the idea of that to uh, regulate where your feet are going. So this is like a sort of, it's not at all feel the body more deeply. It's something else. It's thinking, it's cognition while moving. A guy's trying to punch you in the face. So it's not like you're not physically training at the same time. So the main thing for me for using this is to be very, to uh, break it down into words better, to define all the parts, exactly what we want to happen and explain them in some kind of syntax, you know, like I will pull body part A away from body part B at the same time as I pull body part C away from body part D and I'll do all this without pulling my head down at the same time or I will move my feet in such a way that, you know, it makes it uh, matches the image that you just gave me or, or something like this. Think the instructions through to yourself in advance before you actually do it. So even this is all before you've even you've even started practicing throwing a jab. If you think about it, somebody's already jabbing at the jabbing at the bag now. They're practicing on their own. This is all before that, and uh, and then just very boring in a laborious way. Think through, and this is hard actually to think through all the actual movements you need to do in order some kind of structure that that maps onto the structure and reality that you want to happen. So you're getting the map very clear. You explain it through in words, even though there's images involved, but you have to explain it verbally all the way through. You're giving yourself the instructions to do that as if you're like ordering a subordinate. You're just telling yourself to do things. You're saying, I will do this, I will do that sequentially. And then you just try and train yourself to do all of those things that you've planned in advance all at the same time. Because you're not going to be able to do all the movements sequentially. They all have to kind of coordinate and happen together. But to get it clear in your head first, you 
lay them out sequentially, verbally. I get people to say even out loud in front of the camera, I will do this, I will do that. People can't even remember two instructions in a row. They're like, I will, what, what was it? And they change the words. They make a vague, I give a precise body part definition. You know, I've explained in advance before, uh, exact, like an hmm. exact bony spot and explain where it should be, yeah. where it is now relative to other bony spots and where it should be, where we want it to be. They'll just come up with a vague name that isn't that technical definition hmm. I've just given them. And then the one that then they do something and it's all kind of fuzzy in a mess because their understanding verbally at the start was fuzzy in a mess. So obviously the result would be fuzzy in a mess. So the problem for some people is they can, they're really they're smarter than me and they're quicker. Uh, they're quick at the reasoning about the mechanics of it and where things should be. And they can remember the words and all this stuff. But then when they go to do it, they can't do it. They can't get themselves to do it. So there's a, there's a gap between commanding yourself and obeying. So getting clear with your, what you want to do, your intentions, your, and then deciding that's what, these are the things I'm going to do. These are things I'm not going to do. I'm going to move these parts forward. When I finish, this part will be forward of this other part. When I do this, so the parts have technical terms, but I won't confuse people there. And then you train yourself to get the words closer to the actions. And you don't know if you've done them or not, because when you do it, if you haven't filmed it, you just think it was good based on your feeling, like I talked about earlier. Oh, I felt really flow and good there. So many times people said, oh, that was really good. That felt good there. And I've watched them and it was worse what they just did. But they're convinced that they just did it better. And it felt better because it felt better. I do this too. It's, you know, it's funny, but we're so deluded. It's unbelievable. So deluded. Yeah, yeah. And the more yeah, I agree. bad your, for example, posture gets, the worse your judgment, the more damp, broken an instrument it becomes for judging. You get even worse readings from this instrument of your feel, your kinesthetic awareness of where things are, including people who've trained and done lots of practices and embodiment practices and mind body things. They're just the same. It doesn't actually transfer over to other to what they think. They just feel like it's going well. You can demonstrate all this with a video. So a lot of people don't like me because I'm showing them harsh videos of themselves. But you know, I've done it too. Yeah, it's just one of the reasons I don't like you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, so. <laughs> Never mind the smell of fungus. So, so I just and, believe like, that was real when someone saw you. Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway. It's not popular. Um, so, it's sure it isn't. Yeah. That's why why you have it. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it's an antiquated uh, thing for sure. So so I guess it's kind of what I'm just thinking out loud. I guess it's why, you know, these gyms have mirrors, right? Like, so the all the Muay Thai gyms I go to have mirrors so you can observe yourself and uh, what you're doing, which people rarely do, including myself. Yeah, um, I think shadow boxing is one of the biggest now. things. Shadow boxing, you know, yeah. shadows, or, and then with the mirror is like so important. And the other thing, I, I really hit this, it's counterintuitive. It's obvious now when you say it, but it's counterintuitive when you're doing mm. it. Remember my own combinations better. So seeing them out verbally, being really explicit about them, actually saying them out loud to yourself. You can do this at home. You know, you don't need to do it in the gym like a weirdo. That helps you remember them, thinking them right through. You'll struggle with this. You'll realize how much you really don't know what you're doing. You really don't understand what you're mm. doing. You've just been doing it by by uh, imitation and uh, feeling. Totally. Uh, That's all I've just, ever done. Now that you, you say just it, let the robot take. It. I mean, this is how most people learn yeah, most yeah. things. I mean, there's a place sure. for limitation. Obviously, as humans, you need it. But yeah. for this kind of, the more technical and cognitive it gets, the more you need to transcend the feeling. And, and uh, the what was it? What was it you said there about the? So, oh yeah, the, the, the mirrors. mirrors. So the, 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 mirrors. the thing I helped. The other thing that helped me remember was is to understand it in the mirror, back to front, and to, to understand other people doing it. Explain it to to understand them doing it from their side. 
and 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 to practice them southpaw. So like you're doing the, doing all the movements in reverse, you'll realize how little you don't understand of the combination when you try to do it. You know, left foot forward, uh, right foot forward, whichever way around you are normally. Everything's in reverse, and you'll realize you don't actually understand the structure and the rules because this, the rules are still the same. You're just you know except left instead of right and things like that you're just swapping the content but the structure is still the same and you can't remember the structure when you try and do it in the verse in the beginning because you don't understand the structure that, that's what will reveal it to you and the other thing was just uh, i see it from their point of view trying to watch them do it and then i realized oh now i can remember my own one there because i was trying to understand what they were doing it's just understanding it's not mysterious about mm. it it's not like um not even memorization it's not it's understanding the structure but you have to go through it in words and it can be helpful to see it in an image to have a sort of moving image idea of it, as long as the structure of the images matches reality. If it's not, you'll do some weird shit. So yeah, the mirrors and stuff, I think I, I think originally a lot of combat uh, techniques and stuff were much more cognitively controlled. I mean, think about a guy on a horse with a fucking, what do you call those things? Those big- uh, Spear, spear chuckers. Well, the spear, so let's take a spear. So many complex movements involved. You mean in jousting? You jousting. Jousting, I was thinking. Even that, like, you know, there's so many, like, rules you'd have to be aware of to get the weight, to, to distribute the weight correctly and stuff like that. And then, you know, there's, there, these things just seem, they just feel physical, but really, they're really, a lot of them are really highly intellectual at the same time. But because it's happening in a physical activity, we don't notice it, you know? Hunting. Mm. Like old style hunting, a group hunting chasing a mammoth and that. Very, lots of thinking as well as the physical stuff and coordinating with people as well as coordinating yourself. So really, the way you would organize a hunting expedition with multiple people to take down a mammoth, so you're having to control things through space and time with multiple people and make to change things, you know, as things are happening, react to things and change things while also sticking to some sort of plan while the different parts of the group communicating correctly and clearly. You, know, you have to be clear of a hunter. If you're giving instructions and you don't want to make too much noise, that has to be a very clear, precise word or sound or action means one very specific thing. It's exactly like that, except if you're standing up to, if you're just throwing one punch, you have to coordinate the hunting party of all the different body parts and movements that go into just throwing the punch. It's not just your hand and your arm and your shoulder, it just isn't. It's your whole torso first. Your back, your uh, chest, your uh, like, your, from your feet up, and in other ways, from the ground up, from your feet. It's like, it's this whole, the whole system is working as a whole. And if you're just totally focused on the the one part of the system, the arms, the hands, you'll just start doing things, and that will cause a side effect somewhere else. It'll cause a knock-on effect because you've you've over-optimized one area and you haven't paid attention to the effect it's having on the whole. Mm, yeah, is isn't it funny? Uh, I'm just thinking here that, you know, modern life, you know, I'm not one of these, uh, you know, return to tradition guys or something, but the way that we are now in particular, it, it kind of largely robs you of this kind of thing that you're talking about. So, so hunting a mammoth with a thought, uh, planning it beforehand, uh, maybe talking about it afterwards, what, what went wrong when Grug fell exactly, underneath. Exactly, yeah. And the, got, the planning got beforehand. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then so, analyzing, so oh, next, now, next time this guy's coming yeah, with us, yeah. next time you're not fucking coming, you know, like next time I'm the one walking in with the fucking big chunk of meat and getting all the chicks, you know, like they, they you know, that's something they did. That's something they do do. They, they share the, sure. even if and, they're and not And and his weaker issue. We don't want you on the team, you know. But, the, uh, the whole of life is involved in that. It's not just a physical activity. It's not just go and train no, and totally have some mammoth and back to normal life. It's like totally yeah. integrated in a lower, it's not as cognitive as some of the stuff I've talked about. It is in one way, but it's more kind of spread out amongst people. 
distributed cognition. I'm getting cool now. But you, for your person, you can just get you can get higher and higher levels of this, and you know, and you can have really like abstract mechanical rules in your mind and have train yourself to have more and more and more and get them all to happen at the same time. It's really like interesting. And somehow your brain just recruits the right muscles for the muscles you're doing. You don't need to feel them. Your brain just train yourself. Your brain will just uh, coordinate them all together somehow. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. And 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 these days what what's kind of happened is it's become this huge game of getting good feelings and just basically sustaining the good feelings with the least amount of effort possibly possible but but that kind of has this weirdly ironic effect where it does the exact opposite <laughs> and it's like the it's the last thing that anyone should be doing one thing I wanted to mention is you know when you watch the Thai guys uh, online training right so they they're doing their training and obviously they train for insane amounts of time every day i'm led to believe uh, from from a very young age so it's understandable on one hand that when when you see them and they train they're always kind of joking it's it's kind of light light-hearted i guess in some ways it's not to say that they're not taking it seriously they clearly are and then you know this uh, in our kinds of gyms maybe not in wherever you are but uh, where i'm at um every now and then you get this kind of really ultra aggressive kind of you know spastic white dude or whatever who who um has some you know some kind of severe wee man kind of syndrome he's just a little man and he's he's furious and he's angry and he's just chimping out you know like an absolute joke of a human being and i love these guys because he's in this kind of emotional flow state and his muscles and everything else it doesn't really matter because I can see what he's doing, right? He's being purely reactive. He's emotional. He's angry. And I can punch his fucking lights out like most of the time because I can kind of predict what he's up to. But the Thai guys, they don't do that. So when you watch them, they're just very light. You can tell they care a lot about technique. So they're not light all the time. They're not joking around. But that joking around and that lightness of attitude while you're training, do you think there's something to that? Because they're just not being like highly reactive. They're not coming from a place of fear. They're really kind of not even in a float. They're just kind of enjoying themselves and probably probably learning things, getting through the work that they're doing. I just feel like there's, there's a fast gulf between the two things. I don't know if you've even experienced guys like yeah, that. Yeah, I know have what you mean. Have I you think, met kind of those guys? I think it's the, the, the explanation most people would jump to is, oh, it's a cultural thing. Or something. I don't think it is. I think it's a Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think, I think what is. I say it goes yeah, back yeah. to understanding. So the, the Thai guys, like the good ones, have obviously been doing it from really young. They're you know, immersed in that and stuff. They understand what they're doing. They're really into the technical side of it. So they have a strong technical understanding of, that they've for a long time. So they really they, they understand what is happening and why things are happening. It's at a level where some guy just going in the gym, the guy you described is, he's trying to get good by driving emotional power at it. Like you try to throw strong emotions at it rather than the technical understanding. So when you have it, you don't need that as much because you're you're confident anyway. But you're confident because you understand. That brings confidence. That guy's trying to make himself confident by forcing it with uh, like emotion. Emotion. He's trying to directly create confidence with emotions, whereas the technical guys get the confidence indirectly from understanding and um, implementing it and knowing that they can yeah. do it because they've had the feedback from other people who know what they're doing and stuff. And, and, so you, I think and you watch them and they love it, right? Yeah. They, and you, you can, can see enjoy yourself now. Say you those guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And you see like guys like 
uh, what's his name, Senchai or Superbon or those other dudes, and like they'll get the best of the other guy, and it's always to do a technique. It's never like I'm going to fucking beat the shit out of you like a Western type sparring kind of thing, and they all laugh and fucking joke around and like it's it's kind of like that because because he got the best of him, but it wasn't about force. It was more this kind of this technical exactly. element or if you think about it, from movement. Yeah, and if you, what, what's happening in the sort of, if you think of it from a brain level, it's not like those guys aren't extremely aggressive. They are. It's just on top of the aggression and all the physical, you know, there's all the physical automate, there's a level, all things are automated, they practice so many times. Then there's like the aggressiveness and emotional aggressiveness and, you know, desire to win and all those things. And then on top of that, then there's the, the technical reasoning and uh, making decisions and uh, things that are just so quick now on top of that, that it just seems like they're just doing it, but they're really not. Um, they're really being hyper aware in the moments of what they're doing. And, and there's all, they'll all like a high end elite guy will always be some little thing he's working on trying to improve even during a fight, probably. And uh, once you, if you, once you have integrated all the different levels of you like this at uh, one action, one task, one activity, like they're doing, you're free to have the full range of emotions now. You're not restricted to just showing how tough you are or, or just being aggressive to people socially. You don't need to be. It's like it's been integrated. It's used for a purpose, the fight, so they can just drop it straight after. You know what I mean? You don't, it's not like they have self-control. They have mm -hmm. um, emotional regulation. It's what they've trained the whole time. Fighting is very like you have to train your... You're, I've never been in a proper fight. There's no, no, no space uh, for chimping out. Well, unless you're an absolute stud, maybe, you know, you can overpower someone that way. But rarely the good fighters are that way. Like if you look at uh, Adesanya or someone like that, they're very, very technical and kind of on, on the money, right? Generally. They're, they're yeah. I mean, and I think it just it's, comes to that thing where the uh yeah consciously like yeah. you no, the, what they should be doing and stuff there's obviously an element of obviously there's like certain people are more talented certain people have the right body types for these things they're in the right cultural social situation in order to train and learn there's all these things obviously i'm taking those for granted but once you get to the higher levels there's um there's even i mean there's the thing people say oh the the top end high end of people sports guys or whoever aren't very good teachers because they don't know how to explain what they're doing which is true you know, but it's not because it's not necessarily because they're just doing it automatically. They happen to be good at it. They don't need to think. It's not that. It's that they're thinking at such a higher level now that the stuff that a midwit requires to be thinking, playing through and figuring out as he's doing it, they've already automated that stuff and they're now thinking about higher level of stuff. They're like more precise and like more and more precise and more and more advanced and things. So they're just doing it in a different place. So now for them to drop back down and go, what well, part of my foot's touching the ball when I do that? What, like, how would they know? It's not relevant. It's just not relevant. So they, they're thinking about relevant things. So like, you know, a fighter's not thinking about basics of a job. He's thinking about yeah, pretending, fainting something to get the guy to go off balance this way so he can do this other thing, you know, like, but it's also quick. This is the, like, it's the illusion we have that you, that you're not thinking because it happens quickly. It's just a different kind of thinking or quicker. Um, FM Alexander has a nice, quote in one of his books where he says the conscious mind must be quickened so like hmm. quickened doesn't made hmm. faster but also quickened doesn't made alive you know the quicken you know the quicken hmm. the dead quickened you become yeah. alive so you, you can train that as an example you know there's the thing about people can only remember seven units of information at one time or something like that you know this is like on average you can train that too 
Yeah, consciously, you know, people only have seven things in their mind consciously at one time. And then this is just taken like as a fixed fact about the brain. You can train that too. Working memory, you can train your working memory. So experiments are... Damn, that's... Sorry? I can't Well, I mean, well exactly. I can, in lessons, I can have people think about more than seven movements at once. They don't so feel yours? them all. What's, how many can you keep in your mind? It depends what I'm doing. It depends how you're doing it because right. the, the, the movement, it's not just linear... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movements. Sure, yeah, it's, I like counting. It's yeah. a system of relations. So sometimes you can get other things to go, but sometimes it's like mm. because it's part of a maybe of an image. You have a model of a you have a working model of a mechanism, and your actions are getting closer to the model that you built sure. up in your mind. Cool. But but basically, yeah, you can do far more in the beginning of struggling to do two at the same time. People who struggling to do two movements that are antagonistic to one another, you know, in opposite directions, it just feels so weird. They're like. You can, they all, they yeah, I, the same I issues with that with your course. I still do. I still have trouble. Everyone has um, it. Everyone's, doing, wired. Yeah. Everyone's got their pelvis wired to their knees. You know, when they're sitting, if you, if you lean forward so your pelvis gets closest to your knees, you know, anyone listening can do this. If you lean forward so that the bony parts of your pelvis at the front of your pelvis and uh, you know, under your belt line and uh, put your fingers on those and then lean forward so those bony parts are going closer to your knees. I bet your knees just went forward at the same time. Now come back and about your knees went back at the same time as you as you did it. There's no reason for your knees to go forward and back when you move your when you lean forward and back with your pelvis like this with your your torso, you know. No, there's no need. No, yeah. I bet it's a voluminous belly. Yeah, I love it. you have to. Oh, in Australia, beers have you? Otherwise, you shrivel up and die. That's what it's you know. It's got to keep. You have to keep drinking beer until you're unable to throw another shrimp on the barbie. That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah, shrimp exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so that's like even to remember. So then I would say to somebody, okay, so see if you can take your pelvis, that part of your point of your pelvis, away from your knee without your knee going back at the same time. Then they can kind of rigidly hold your knee in place and it doesn't go back. And I'll say, well, you, now you can just tell yourself mentally, I will, as I take that pelvis point back away from the knee, I'll, I'll send the knee forward just enough so that it looks like it stayed in place, but actually I've, I've moved it against the other one. So you now have this antagonistic action, like you're pulling an elastic band, you know, your hands away from one another, like an elastic band. And then you can, this helps you start stretching the fascia and using its springs. You have to do this with the whole body, not just the leg, obviously. And uh, that's only two movements now we've talked about. And people are struggle, will struggle to do this at the start, and I did when I was learning this, because mm-hmm. you just don't think, you're not used to thinking like this. You're used to feeling straight into the knee and feeling straight into the pelvis. And then you wriggle around until it feels a bit better. Okay, that's better. We just don't think, we don't apply that kind of reasoning to our movements because we just haven't been trained to. You, there's no reason this couldn't be taught in school. You know, it's just um, body mechanics, conscious body mechanics. But conscious means reason, directed, intentional, deliberate, thought out. It doesn't mean I'm so aware of my feeling in my knee and my pelvis, man. I can feel it, you know, I'm in a flow and it's all great yeah, now because yeah. it feels slow. But that's what... I did that for years, thinking I was doing that. Well, so, like, I'm walking myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so you can build up, and then you do that. Okay, now I'm doing something with the ribs at the same time as doing that. Now I'm doing something with the head and the upper ribs, same time as that, with my elbow at the same time as that. Hard to know how many you're doing at one time. There's no end to it, really. But you basically just all, they all become embedded in the same model. So it's not like they're random things you have to remember. So by doing that, my working memory is bigger than it used to be. I used to like struggle to remember the first three numbers of somebody reading a number out or something. And uh, now it's it's more because of that. And I'm convinced it's because of that psychophysical way where you're doing the cognitive and physical at the same time. That That's why it's spilling over into other purely cognitive things like remembering a phone number. You know what I mean? I know a big yeah, tall guy like yeah. a big tall guy like you has girls writing their own phone number on their arm for you, on your arm. 
Oh, you don't need to. You don't need to remember. Yeah, that's how I. That's that's how I think about that now. But it's you. All the while you're doing this, you're suffering from different emotions and feelings. If you're everything I just described there about doing the knee and the pelvis away from one another like that, you can't do that without words. Can't do that without yeah. instructions. You can't feel your way to doing that because it's a, it's a mental idea to do that. It doesn't happen by itself, and uh, it feels weird. And if you when you first do, it, it I want to get to this. So like, I want to get to this. Hold this point. Stay on feelings. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so keep going about feelings because we need to talk about feelings and how it all ties in with thinking and and uh, doing, of course. So, I, I just so I'll just interject now because I, I, I do want to steer the conversation in that direction. So, you brought it. You brought it up a couple of times while you've been describing this. So, we do things that feel good because they're habitual. They're, they're habitual, and that's why they feel good because uh, that constitutes uh, safety. So it could be, you know, my my huge heaving uh, gut and the way that it moves over my knees when I twist my pelvis and I do it in a certain way because it feels good. It's a, it's a habit, habitual pattern of movement. And I think that I was talking about recently on my, on my um, blog Substack, um, actually, which everyone should subscribe to about the origin of uh, words and concepts. And I, I, I did a bit of a deep dive talking about the idea of where words and concepts not come from, but what their, their, their fundamental, I would just say, nature, what, what, what they're built on top of, I guess, is, is one metaphor you could use. And I think it's very clear from what you're saying that there is a, a kind of there's feelings. So you have feelings, you have sensations uh, that come from the the lower so-called lower ancient brains, the reactive kind of I suppose reptilian brain for the very very basic things. But then you have the mammalian brain, which uh, we've spoken about the ice cream scoop brain theory before. So you have different scoops. Each uh, represents basically a, a new uh, level of uh, evolution. And, you know, so you have those those uh, feelings that come from those very primitive ancient parts of the brain and how they connect to the nervous system and the tissues and all the other uh, various uh, regulatory things that very often happen subconsciously. This From this thing that just happens, then we seem to get words and concepts. So our concepts and words are, are very much built on or reinforced by, I think is maybe a better way to put it, on the feelings um, and various other things uh, that our bodies give us automatically, um, subconsciously. Um, and then, of course, from this, our words and concepts, all in a, in a holistic sense, then go and drive our movements. So our movement and doing in space. So I think it's it's very correct then to say that concepts and words they tend to influence uh, behavior, and then of course the the converse is true. So the the fact that our behavior mirror the concepts that we have that operate under the bonnet, our metaphysical beliefs about ourselves and the world and various other things, and we've observed this from a more athletic point of view. But if we were to extrapolate that into, uh, how would you say, like a living point of view, and we extrapolate that we have feelings, we have various, you know, gut feelings, the way our gut feels, even, even not on a diet of Mars bars, fried Mars bars. And we create these stories. We have concepts and stories. And thinking is kind of like a reinforcing story 
that's kind of built upon habitual feelings and that this feeds then into the way that we move, the way that we do, and the way that we approach life. And this system largely operates in the background. We have no idea about it uh, happening at all. And the athletic examples are so good because it really just shows that in a very concentrated way, like what, what the fundamental problem is. That we can look at the athletic stuff, which is excellent. But then if we chunk up and then we start to look at our own lives from a bio-individual perspective, then we can kind of start to like look at the problem with thinking. So thinking being built upon automated feelings and automated reactivity and then the problems that can create for us when we try to exert our will in a more flexible and total way. Do you have any thoughts on that? So, so for example, we tend to create many of our own problems. I think that basically all of them, really, if you think about it. And we have all these limitations because of all these stories and narratives that were built up usually automatically from the time that we were young children developing right up to being adults, where we tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies. How do you think is a good way to get on top of this tendency in a general life situation outside of athletics? So, so for example, maybe on a higher level cognitive task, like an executive task, what, what's, what, what are good methods or what are good techniques to really dive down into the same tendency that we have in a day-to-day -day situation, in your opinion. Am I making sense? Does that make yeah, sense? I think it well, does. Yeah. One example, I don't know if I've said on here before, is uh, I have vertigo, you know, fear of heights. And, uh, Do you really? You've never said that. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> I have, you go mountain climbing. It was historically very bad. And, uh, you know, the, to the point of watching a video of something, you get the, the like, tremors in the legs and stuff just by watching a video, you know, on a phone or something. So like, even a huge part of my body knows I'm not on a cliff. Just a tiny part of me is yeah. watching the video. You know, I, I, Why, I get that with those guys that do that building thing, how they go right at the top and then they hang those type of, I can feel it. Like I'm like, that's yeah. fucked. That's like, a empathi empathetic function that just happens when I put myself in people's position. So I, I think that makes it worse for me as well, rather than it just being an optical illusion or whatever. But so anyway, so what I, to deal with that, you know, the methods, you know, the different methods, obviously, hypnosis or whatever. One of the methods is, you know, you just get, you know, uh, I can't remember what they call it, but, you know, you're a little bit higher and you just gradually get used to higher and higher. That does work. You know, you just, if you can do that, you know, like over a long period of time, you get used to it, but not so much. But what I found was I was in a situation where I couldn't really get out of it. I was in a, on a trip. There's no way I could get out of it. And it was really wild roads, mountains, Mediterranean mountains, and uh, terrifying and fast and all these things and you know i'm not sure i trusted the infrastructure of the cash barriers and the roads and all these things so oh, yeah, i was right. pretty terrified and first time on this i was like you just find yourself that so there's all the physiological fear comes you notice i was going to say it comes first but it's this is weird so like there's a physiological side of it like you're talking about where it just starts happening to you and people who don't have fear of heights don't understand they can never understand this they're like a, when a person freezes not on the height because they're just like it happens to you and you, you're not choosing it. You're not, they just don't think about falling. You know, it's like it's already happened. You know, that's just a physiological thing. But there's also yeah. the mental side of it. So they're, you're saying things in your head, you're worrying, you're scattering in your head, you're going, oh, this is ridiculous. Why am I here? You know, you have all these judgments and stuff. And then the physical thing, and then those things start feeding each other. So the, the, the thoughts are making the physiology worse. 
the physiology is making the thoughts more erratic and all over the place and judgmental and uh, you can round the circles and fantasizing about being somebody else and not this and you know all this stuff it's totally out of control and so the technique for that would be there's two ways that I personally would approach, did approach it was one of them was to do give myself conscious instructions about different body part movements to create a stable form of myself sitting in the, in the car I wasn't driving so that uh, creating a more stable form a more stable structure for myself like, um, what is it the little down. book of calm do you remember that you are the, you are the king <laughs> of your own calm kingdom see I didn't try any of that, that you're climbing or Okay. That's well, the, it'll probably no, work. I mean, maybe there's something to it, right? No? <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't even read a book about rock climbing. <laughs> that's not true. But yeah, that's the other approach people do is the main approach. They'll try and change the bad emotions for new emotions. So what they'll try is to, I'm scared. Oh, I feel calm. I feel calm. It's just everyone knows this is rubbish. It doesn't yeah. work. Fucking so like calm it, down. Just calm down. And yeah. this is the reason I think all the, a lot of the mind-body methods and all these spiritual techniques, loads of them are just completely delusion Delusory, delusionary, delusionary, because they think that, yeah, I was just seeing if you could famous conscious Um, promotion, (laughs) famous conscious. Yeah, that's why I don't like a lot of these methods, because they they train you in a calm room with calm. They have the whale music on and they have the nice incense smells. And if they're training themselves to be so calm, if I could just be so calm in this calm situation, then when I go out in the real world, if something bad happens or dangerous, I'll be calm there, too. It doesn't work. Yeah. You have to train yourself to no. be calm in a stressful you have to train yourself to act in a stressful situation. Be calm and collected in the stressful you know, that that quote about uh, be unusually yeah. calm and not lose your while everyone else is losing your heads losing their heads around you. Yeah. But it's all about again. Don't play whale songs in Gaza at the moment, for example. It's not gonna help you much, right? Exactly. It's, although yeah. people do try things Unless like that for that. They are. I mean that's it's they think, you know, they they really do things things like that. I think it will it will help things like that. <laughs> yeah. Because just it's the same mentality. Just to have a very yeah. calm feelings. Man. Feelings. It's the yeah. It's the feelings yeah, yeah. Uh, addiction, but it's also the um, thinking things transfer to other things. Thinking if you've learned something in one specific way, that it will transfer to other different ways. Right. Uh, and what would you earlier. call that? Just quickly, would you call that magical thinking? I forget who that was, but you have that magical thinking. How you just kind of magical think thinking will happen. Yeah. Some of it's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Some of it's just badly, just like bizarre. It's just that their words in their head and what they think are disconnected from actions for them in their own life. So they, when they think of thing problems in the world, they think it's they don't think of it in a practical sense. You know, they just people just need to yeah. become more conscious. Yeah, yeah. People just need to do this. People, do, you know, because they haven't actually tried to turn those things into real physical change in their own life. Not really. Just be a decent fucking human being, man. So they have these huge abstractions that they just mean nothing and uh, can do nothing, more importantly. So yeah, a lot of the, the techniques will try and keep you calm. So what I did when I had the Verico is instead of doing that, so trying to make myself calm, I did try that because that was the instinctive thing. And I was like, oh, of course, that doesn't work because right. you're trying to force one emotion with another emotion. You're still not conscious. Sorry, where were you? Is this, an, this was a mountain in the Mediterranean. This is very some, high, some... dodgy, single track roads with lots of corners on the edge of a mountain without... And it was hiking. You were hiking at the time. No, no, in a car, in a fast rock car. Rock climbing. No, no, fast oh, car. Oh, you were in a car. So you weren't. Yeah. Okay, okay. Fast yeah. car, right. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. and I couldn't go on an erratic driver, let's say. And I couldn't go. <laughs> there's nowhere I could go. I couldn't right. get out. You know, like it was like nowhere, yeah. nowhere. There's, and it's roasting. And, you know, like you just not. And the social situation, I couldn't leave anyway. And it would be embarrassing. And there's all social reasons. Don't even mention it. 
Right. And um, so there's that. And so that's an element of, of control you need to, to mention, although I did mention it some of those. So, yeah, so the first thing was that, okay, instead of doing the initial thing was to go by feeling, to try and change the feelings directly. It doesn't work. And this is what people do in posture. They try and feel around until they find a new position. Oh, that feels better. Is it better now? Oh, no, suddenly I forgot about it two minutes later and it, doesn't, it feels worse overall now, you know? So this, again, this is the way we're trained how to think or biologically evolved how to think so far. Most, you know, in as habit, it's not the only way, but it's their standard way of behaving, default behavior. So rather than doing that, then I um, did some conscious movements about changing my structure, basically. So in a way, if you're getting a more stable structure, that spills over into more stable emotions. So it helps a little bit. But more importantly, what am I doing now when I do that? I've completely, I'm no longer playing the game of my old internal dialogue of, oh, nip, 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 this is terrible, I feel terrible, oh, what we thought, you know, like all these images and ideas, words that are just rushing through your head based on the fear. So now I've set up alongside the chit-chat, I've set up this conscious dialogue. So that hasn't gone away yet, but so alongside it, I will move this part relative to that part, I'm going to do this, okay, I'll coordinate them all together in two seconds. Okay, did that work? Okay, and then I'm like, because I don't have a video there, I'm, I'm using like the positions of shoulder relative to like a certain part on the door. You know, I've got like, I'm using visual cues instead of uh, around me for positions and stuff to see that there's some kind of objective side to it. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. And some of this I've thought about in advance, so I, I knew where things should be relative to objects. And uh, while you're doing this, you're now taking the energy away from the negative self-talk and you have this constructive, it's not positive self-talk. It's not like, oh, I feel calm. It's constructive, action-oriented self-talk. I will do these things. Yeah. Okay, do them. Because it's always a lie when you try and do that anyway, right? Because you're like, yeah. it's okay, Kevin. It's hey, a lie. Don't worry about you don't it. You're creating the fucking problem, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, you're making it worse. You're acknowledging so, there's a problem through your self-talk. It's, it's a... Uh, yeah, Stop why would you need to say it if it wasn't if it was true? You wouldn't need to say it. So, like that's one side of it. So I did that, and the other thing was just the it, well, it's the same thing. It's the setting up a sort of an alternative internal dialogue, and it requires effort in the beginning because you're in fear, you're lazy, you don't want to do it, you can't be bothered, you think it won't work, and all those things. Usual negative self talk anyone gets fear based stuff. You know, when the, your amygdala is stimulated, you'll believe and do anything completely irrationally. This has been proved recently, I think, in the last few years. So you really have to use a, a, some kind of effort to do this And in the beginning. And then it gets better. You start to calm down because you've changed your physical structure. You start to calm down because you have a new di internal dialogue structure that's focused on actions, doing something. Humans need to do something to feel okay. There's part of you when you're in fear like that, trapped in a car going fast and you have on the mountain roads uh, with vertigo, it's because you can't do anything. That's part of it. It's not simply just the problem and the fear. It's the, it's you can't do something. So just doing anything will help, even if it's like some, some magical thinking will actually help because the person feels that they've done something, you know, gets them out of it a little bit. That's just like, seems to be a human mm -hmm. thing. But if you actually understand mm -hmm. what it is you're doing and changing, and then you just, oh, it's going away now. It's going away now. And then the next time I went, it was in a similar situation. It wasn't even half as bad. And I didn't have to make any effort uh, the second time because it was already half as bad because I'd, all, I'd broken that pattern and it just didn't happen like that anymore, you know? So I still got the fear and stuff. It was like a much lower level, but I already had, I was reacting to the emotions in a different way now. And then I just did the same thing again. I went down again and now it's, it's way less even now. So that's... that's. Uh, so what, what car were you in? Were you in a Ferrari or a... No, no. Mercedes. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Okay. Um, for you. I don't know. My, but it was, you know, the the driving style was very uh, fast as possible the on rest. the straight bits and then you slam on the brakes right. in the corners. 
constantly. And yeah. this part, so many corners, it was just like, and then the overall, the road would be going down and I'd start to calm down thinking we're leaving the mountains now because I know where we were. And then the next bit, the road starts going up again and then all the dialogue would start again. Oh no, we're going up again. I can't believe we're going up again. It's going to be hours before, you know, like, <laughs> they'll kick off again. And uh, you, you don't get rid of this stuff. What you do is you train yourself to deal with it in a different way. So it's not like no pain, no gain, I'm tavern on. Yeah. From my experience, I mean, that's not the way it works. It's just, it's just in a little way, you just get, you just don't instantly react to the fear and you just start thinking about something you can well, do. And of doing course. It. Yeah. Well, the, you know, this is where mindfulness comes in. This is a mindfulness situation, I think, if you think about it. So, so doing and thinking what mindfulness does for you is, is it creates uh, some space between the two things, which is sometimes useful. And I, I don't know if you call that thinking, you have to call the reactive part thoughting, wouldn't you? Um, according to our last episode, it's more a case of thoughting than thinking. And you're changing the thoughting to a form of thinking, but you're also detaching yourself from the thoughting. So, so what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I, I stole this uh, from someone. But the idea that a problem cannot be solved because it doesn't exist. Trying to fix the problem only ensures that the problem is reinforced. Now, this is a very Buddhist way of looking at things, but it kind of ties in with what you're saying, because the reactivity almost guarantees in any situation in life. So whether you're scared of heights, you're scared of a meeting, you don't want to talk to your boss, whatever it is, it's limiting you. The more you think about acknowledging the problem, even trauma, you know, I often write about trauma and how much that concept annoys me. And I'm not saying real trauma doesn't exist. I think it does. People definitely have very traumatic experiences and they need to deal with it. It's not really what I'm getting at. I'm getting more of the kind of bourgeois, kind of like everything is trauma. You know, dad looked at me the wrong way when I was six, I think. And therefore, that's why I'm an irredeemable twat in everyday life, which is what most people take trauma to be these days. But it's, it's kind of the creation of a problem where there isn't necessarily a problem that is being reinforced because you've created the problem. You've created the problem with your thinking. And so in some sense, the power of mindfulness is creating the space where you actually don't attach a judgment to anything and you don't think. Or if you do think, it's not that you don't think, it's that you it, it, not ignore, but you're aware of the thoughts and what they truly are in their proper context. So it sounds to me like uh, you're, you're almost in a meditative state because you're, you've got all these feelings coming at you and you're, you know, you're, you're going, you know, you're, you know, these things are happening. They're not going away, but I know rationally that this is my objective and those things are not useful for what I'm trying to do. So, you know, I guess in a general sense, we can talk about how mindfulness is useful for determining the difference between thinking and doing and how these things reinforce each other. Do you have any ideas on that? I say my thing that I explained there, the mindfulness part was just the beginning there. Oh, recognizing this is what's happening. I'm doing this. These things are happening to me now and I'm doing this thing. You know, that initial, I mean, metacognition or, you know, viewing yourself from outside or whatever at the start. But then later it's more up active in a way that mindfulness training to me seems more passive i mean in a technical sense where and the meditation and it is the type of meditation that's like discursive meditation because you're thinking through things and you're following the logic of it and you're trying to problem solve 
And to do that, you need an element of the mindfulness terror and of reacting to, oh, there's a feeling, there's a feeling, there's a negative emotion, there's that. There's it's that, detachment in a way, though, isn't it? It's kind of like yeah. being detached from the reactivity that's happening. That's Yeah, but that's, it's not just that. Yeah. You're doing that at this, you're doing, but by starting to think about the, stru- the movements that create a new structure, you, you actually have to detach in a way in order to even do that. So if the, you know, what I'm saying probably, if the person has to have a level of mindfulness, metacognition in the beginning in order to do that, I think, because otherwise you'll just be, they'll just be stuck in the loops and not even come out of it. But again, yeah. that you just yeah, you wouldn't yourself, even think about it, right? Yeah. Train yourself that over time, but there's an element of lack or genetics or more mystical explanations of why some people have it, some people don't, who knows? Some people seem to have more being fucking crazy, probably more of the case. Uh, yes, in our it. case, or at least my case. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's just the difference then is that it's, it's kind of, but it's more active. Uh, in terms of the problems, it's I, I know what you mean about the problem. If you think of it as a problem, you make it static. You make it a static thing, which then you'll passively react to emotionally. So there's this problem now. There's this thing. It's like a monster in the bushes, and now I'm scared of the monster. Whereas if you don't think of it as yeah. a problem, you just think. There's a situation, you just, that is what it is. And then you're like, you understand the situation. Okay, I need to change. It's just an occurrence, right? Situation. I need Things to do are just something. an occurrence. Yeah, yeah, and then you do it yeah, like, sorry, okay, so good. I would need to do something in order to create a new situation. You're not really thinking about the problem. You know, I need to run now. <laughs> I need to climb a tree now. Not puzzling over the problem of the tiger. I don't know, kind of tiger, climb a tree. It's probably about it somewhere. Yeah. Esoteric but, uh, essence of the tiger. Yeah. He, the essence right, would definitely chase you up the tree. I think that that's the problem. Things you, I know they're meaning in a different way. They're meaning like you're a lot of the problems are just kind of wrong, mistaken ego things that you think are an issue aren't. And these, when you have an awakening, they just drop away and they're not a problem anymore. That's probably more what they're talking about, which is true also. In my thing, the, the example there, I would, it's, it's not really that. I don't know how much of that I could have done without having done all these things in the past. No. I don't know how much you can just, that could be, I don't know, is that the first technique someone could do to themselves? Probably. I don't know for definite. You know, I know from doing the movement practices of when people solve their insomnia and improve their sleep from doing it. So I don't know, is that the physical changes made them rest better? Or is it that they now they're in more control of their mind? They're controlling their internal dialogue so they can switch off the chat chat when they try to sleep. So, so now they sleep better. So would you say that, just put it this way, so the the nervous system, the feelings, then the words and the concepts that are built on top of that automate, automated reactivity. So our, our beliefs and, and fears, so if we're conscious of them or not, matters a lot. And those things are the steering mechanism. So in, in some way, you need to be aware of those things. Otherwise, you're going to have no chance because they're the things that steer your muscles, right? That's what's happening. It's like it comes from the feeling. Those, those deeper parts of the, the brain, well, brains, quite literally, actually, that was a mistake, but you know, I meant to say it. And then you have the thoughts and the thinking, which are mostly automated in most people that then quite literally steer the muscles. They steer the muscles to do certain things, which of course, if that whole process is automated, then the steering of the muscles is also automated that have consequences in time and space for our entire life. So I, the way I see it is then the goal of the mind of mindfulness in general, probably, to be honest, is to really understand not only that whole process as it is all together, but also to really probably drill down on beliefs and fears and repetitive programming that you notice while you're in a meditation state. And I do think that that, that is probably completely necessary to do what you did. 
and you've obviously done this kind of work, right? But if you're someone who's never meditated at all, you would have no no fucking chance of even getting to that initial point. I think you just have no chance. Yeah, probably all your self-reflection on it would be after you got home and it was over and you were telling somebody about it later. You then you'd really have. But even that, even that would still be filtered through yeah. that oh, automated yeah, yeah. response. Wait, it's like what I'm saying. About so you've got to break it down somehow. You get into a stage where you can yeah. flicker between the automated robot, the fleshy robot doing its thing, and then you, the conscious bio individual, changing, intervening, and changing things to make your situation better. You know, extend. Yeah. And you need to be mindful of the power. whole process. Yeah, that as well. And you need to see the whole thing how it how it's put together, which I don't think most most people do because they just don't don't really know. Which is, you know, okay, because we're not designed to. But I do think mindfulness uh, really helps uh, with that personally. And uh, emotions are very overpowering. And feelings are extremely overpowering. You know, uh, I think we all know that. And meditation, at least a little true. bit of meditation, it doesn't even have to be much. I think meditation feel- really powers down that that full-on, like, overpowering elements of the emotion. It's not that it yeah, goes you just away. Start, you start seeing them as objects. No. Yeah, other exactly. things it's that appear. That They're happens. just like things, yeah, yeah, rather than it being, exactly. stop thinking it, it's exactly. you, because instead of thinking the feelings are me, you just think there's a feeling I, wherever the I is now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a feeling happening. happening. Yeah. And uh, over time, I mean, I mean, some people misunderstand when we talk, talk about things like this, that it's as if we're saying you're going to kill all emotions and not have emotions and be this perfect abstract role, you know, higher being that's outside of all these things. It's not that at all. It's it's some, obviously all of your thinking is motivated in some way because your emotions are deeper and older and more central to you as an animal on a planet. However, there's some kind of regulation can happen from higher parts of the brain and, and thinking and things yeah. that can drive things off and switch things on and you can absolutely. run with things. You can allow good emotion, you can allow things that are useful you can direct them in different ways. There's ways you can regulate them. It's not about denying them and it's not about hiding them or pretending there's something else. Often the emotions are something, there's something you need to do. Usually like the emotion, if it's repeating, it's because you have some unmet need that you're not dealing with. You need to do something. Yeah. And it might not be and obvious. They, they can also is. be your friend. Yeah, totally. You see, you see in a survival situation, they're your friend. It, it's only because of modern society that we, you know, we're all messed up and hyper, you've got hyper stimulation and it's not simple anymore. So you're not just running away from the tiger or, or trying to hunt the mammoth with grug. So in a sense that, that makes it necessary that we now understand our nervous system and emotions and how all these things are working because they've outlived their usefulness, their primitive usefulness. So in a sense where we need to now work on is bio-individuals a consciously directed recalibration of them. And when you do that, when you go through that process, instead of being debilitating, actually become self-reinforcing. So over time, you can program these things in such a way that they're not working against you anymore. You're consciously directing them, at, le- at least as much as that's possible, right? But but with with these processes comes that degree of self-mastery. And, and that's where the doing part maximizes uh, itself. And within that context, the thinking part then also becomes a part of that chain that leads to that maximizing of free will. Because thinking itself, we tend to think that thinking is like this, that is objectively me. I am a thought. That, that's what I am. I have all these thoughts and theories and concepts. But when you're a bio-individual, you're looking at it completely differently. You're looking at it 
bottom up. So you got here are my feelings, and then I have the thoughts that occur. And because I'm mindful, I notice the feelings, and I notice then the sensations, and then I notice when I have these feelings and sensations, the thoughts that kind of automatically tend to come up. And over time, as you notice these things, then you can use tools. So you can use tools like the posture work, or you can use tools like breath work, or trying to calm down your nervous system in certain situations. So all these things are uh, different modes of consciously directing control over yourself. And, and in this sense, then language, or, or sorry, not language specifically, but thinking then takes on an, a whole new paradigm and dimension. So instead of being this thing that I think is objective and true, and, and uh, even though it's automated, I think I'm in control, it, it too just becomes another tool. It's like everything is a tool that is available to us. And that's how I would summarize how all this fits together. And particularly the difference between thinking and doing, because, you know, thinking is, it's, it's largely automated. And it, 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 it's like what we were talking about in our last episode. It's, it's not really thinking, it's thoughting. So, so really the difference is flipping the thoughting into deliberate thinking. And that requires uh, a large degree of mindfulness. It requires a large degree of conscious integration and conscious control. Again, you were saying that people have trouble with that word, but it's probably the only word that really fits over all these processes that before were under the bonnet. And you didn't really know how they were happening, why they were happening. But over time, through all these different ways, you start to exercise a degree of control over all of them. And Therefore, over time, you start to build up more of a reservoir of free space, which I'm stealing from Hyatt, from which you can act from. And uh, I called it um, breaking in Bucephalus. But, but I've since found out that Alexander was a raging homosexual globalist. So I don't even know if that's... I always thought he was cool, but maybe I'm wrong. I've seen on Twitter that he wasn't that cool. But anyway, it remains the case because if, if you look at that story about how the young Alexander found his horse and no one could tame the horse, and then he tamed it, and then it he went into all the battles with this horse, and then he achieved uh, that level of greatness. I love that metaphor because... The nervous system, all these different things, uh, thinking is not different from the nervous system. Feeling is not different from the nervous system. It's all one thing. It's not separated in the way that we're talking about it. The ability to exercise conscious control over it is kind of like breaking in the horse, breaking in the out of control horse. Before it was throwing you off and trampling you and, you know, biting people uh, like horses do apparently. But after this bio-individual process and all these different means and methods that you can use for different things that have different emphasis, all these different tools, then all of a sudden these things that were once debilitating to you, they end up serving you. And I think that that is, uh, in my opinion, what the bio-individual uh, individual work is really all about. So yeah, that's that's how I'm going to finish. Yeah, I, don't I, know no, I like the you. the rider yeah. and the horse metaphor is perfect because you're not denying there's a horse. You're not pretending you can do the same things without the horse. You're not, you're not pretending it's all in your mind and you're going to escape all these things. But you're also not just accepting the horse the way it is. It needs to be trained. Some things will be automated, but it's also reacting to you and your decisions in real time. So the rider's making little changes 
and the horse is trained to change uh, to go to obey its to obey the command. So you can think of this like the higher levels and your cognitive levels and your as the rider and your more structural physical levels as the horse. And uh, for most people, it's very wild, but not in a good way. So you have to, to as you say, you have to uh, break it, break in the horse, and uh, tame the horse and use the horse as a tool because. At the end of the then stretch the metaphor, you know, there's like a symbiosis between the rider and the horse. You know, they'll, if it's a good horse, the horse will be getting treated well and they'll have a better life. Maybe a glorious death also if it's in World War One. Glorious the death. Will, Sexy. The, That's what they all talk about, dying. I mean, it's horrible the, the amount of horses that died there. But anyway, the point being, you, uh, it's like the rider and the horse and you need both, but one of them is in charge. So the bio-individual is the in-charge part. The individual is the rider of the horse and the bio is the horse. You need both. You need to train both. They're both interrelated and interconnected. There's different levels of the same system, but they're not separable. And uh, you can train them both. They can both get better. Horses are born better than others. Some people are born more skillful than others. Big wow, you can still, they can all mostly get better unless you're very unlucky. So yeah, horse riding. You can. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, um, I have a terrible horse who's an alcoholic, uh, pretty much. And I, I, you know, I still did okay. It is possible, uh, you know, that it, that it works out for you. Just just want to say that it is, it is, the juice is worth the squeeze. And uh, I will say this as well, it's, it's not all functional. So once you, you get a handle on thinking, thoughting, and doing, and the difference between these things and the, and the functional difference between these things, you know, I, I hate to use this word, but spiritual and enlightenment, you know, what these things are intimately connected and tied up with mastering these things that we're talking about. In fact, if you look at a tradition like Buddhism, and, you know, I, I know a lot of the guys in, into the books and the texts and all this sort of stuff, but if you really drill down into what the Buddha said, he's really suggesting this kind of thing. Really, that's what he's kind of suggesting. And the the practice of Buddhism is is very much a you know it's it's a mastering of the the lower or the more reactive systems from an executive functional point of view. So the executive parts of the brain are exercising control over the lower parts of the brain. It's really to a large degree what Buddhism is. And a lot of ancient traditions are similar. It's just they got jazzed up with, uh, you know, esoteric promises. But from a physiological point of view, that's, you know, uh, what a lot of those things are. And for that reason, they're time tested. They're true. We know they work. I know they work. Kevin knows they work. And they're worth uh, pursuing, I think, uh, from the point of view that we're discussing here. And, you know, we, we shouldn't uh, reject uh, life uh, at all. We should. Uh, so is, do you think we'll just finish off with this? But do you think that Buddhism is a rejection of life? Do you think the religion is a rejection of life? It can be, can't it? So if you look at a religion, maybe like Christianity, is is a kind of rejection of life in some way. How how do you view those things in the context of thinking and doing? And I think both of those things how, depends on. It depends on what phase. Depends on what phase they were in. Depends on what stage of the civilization. Depends. So, do you on, think uh, the bio-individual path is a Western path? It's a it's a Faustian path, isn't it? It's kind of like integrating a lot of these things. It's taking the the technique of these old uh, philosophies and it's 
not reappropriating them, but recontextualizing them towards a different aim. Yeah, so I mean, all these, all these old paths took their t- techniques from other places and adopted them anyway. You know, it just goes round and round, and each civilization adopts them and gives their own flavor or angle to it that's different from other people. And then it deteriorates later in different people, or maybe doesn't, or changes and goes through all different phases. But uh, yeah, I think the Western thing is. The Western version of Buddhism is quite a little bit different. Buddha's Buddhism is a bit different from the later Buddhism too, I think, from my understanding. I think the for some people they are attracted, I think, from the anti-life point of view, and but other people they're not at all. It's uh, adds to their life. It gives them more life. You know, like uh, depends whether you're making depends what you. I mean, Nietzsche would obviously say the person the person is this. The type of person is either an ascending type or a descending type is attracted to whatever. It depends on how you use them. And for us, bio-individual means we had a podcast on this a while ago about for Westerners, can you pick and mix techniques? Should you? How's the best way to do it? Should you stick to a tradition and the pros and cons of both of those things? And I think for us now at this stage in our culture anyway, we're just uh, condemned to make a Westernized version of a mix, pick and mix of things, including Western methods and uh, practices, obviously. And uh, I don't think it necessarily has to be, uh, either Either Buddhism or Christianity need to be anti-life at all. I know in certain ways they are, because there's a certain way they are like, uh, it's something else, not the immediate life here. But the, you don't know whether that's like a, like say for the Buddha, you don't know whether that's a end point or it's just a technique. You have to give up on all the little things in order to make the progress with the meditation technique. So there's like a very practical down to earth reason for some of the stuff that's like, if you take as a big picture idea, it's very negative, but no, there's this emotion, there's that. And you just ignore the positive emotions, just like the negative emotions. Sounds very like nihilistic in that sense, but it's a technique. It's making you detach from those things. So you're not a mercy of those things. And now you have this, as you say, more free space time in order to enjoy more of those things. I mean, your chief has this thing where he says the goal of his work is for people to be able to pleasure. And that doesn't sound at all like your chief's work at all. Did he, say, did he say have pleasure? The goal of his it, work to, is to have To be pleasure. able to take, no, to be able to take, I can't remember the exact word, it's to be able to experience pleasure, I think. And what, but what he means huh. is it's not hedonism and it's not um, about no. directly, it's not directly that his thing's very much more like I've been saying about the doing things regardless of how you feel about them and struggling through and all that. He's like an extremist and that stuff. So it confuses people if they hear that. But what he's meaning is once you've detached from the being at the mercy of these things where you're just, they're happening to you and you're just like a fleshy robot, no control over them. Once you've detached from those things, then you can actually move towards things that are pleasurable without them damaging you, without it just being reactions to a bad feeling. So you look for the good feeling. It's now real. You know, it's like, you really are pure, if you know what I mean. This is, these are my words. You now can actually have the good things, which aren't just, you know, like, oh, I'm just enjoying life. You know, the guy, I'm just enjoying life. But really, it's all reactions to emotional states. And he's not really enjoying life. And, you know, he's, you know, the types. But it, the goal, and Gurdjieff also is, you know, for practicing in real life. It's not for being in a cave. So you need to, it's like a technique, a, a part of the process. And the early Christian stuff, I think, is similar to that as well. You know, the the monk stuff where you give up things because that's you're creating the personal power for yourself. A lot of them gave up stuff and then keep giving up stuff and stay giving up of everything. So that's one type of person to do that. Other people will do the techniques until they give up the stuff and now they can take on new stuff and, and experience pleasure and have the fun and that without getting attached to it in a weak way. They've just created more power for themselves through the detachments. Technique. So you have to, when you start seeing through the different 
cultures and practices, the ways you start seeing through to the structures of the techniques and as tools, using them as tools, then you can just use them. You don't need to go along with anybody's interpretation of what that religion and what that stage in history wanted to, or thought about life in general. Yeah. Let's, you know, it's interesting because, because uh, my last newsletter was about the difference between thinking and doing largely actually, because, you know, I've seen a lot of interpretations of Buddhism and someone who's practiced Buddhism for a fairly long time now and had uh, certain states, uh, I guess, physiological, psychophysiological states during meditation. I, it always just struck me as, you know, a lot of commie gobbledygook. So you've got people saying, oh, man, it's anti-life, man, you know, all the various things. And, and from a thinking point of view, and actually a thoughting point of view more to the case, because most people, whether they're, you know, they consider themselves to be pro-life or they have a belief that, you know, I am this religion, therefore all the other religions are evil and terrible. They've got this thing underneath. So they get, when they see something like Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it is, they get, get, they get a feeling, right? They get an unpleasant feeling. And then they put these words over the top. So, okay, this concept is now that this is anti-life, whereas my religion is pro-life for whatever reasons uh, they choose to employ. But my whole uh, point was during my sessions, which I've actually booked another one, so I'm going to be away in November uh, on another one uh, studying uh, with uh, my Zen master. But he, uh, when I am in that state for a long time in my newsletter, I described the feelings that I get. So the feelings that I get, I get heat. I get vibration. I can feel very subtle tremors in my muscles and and everything. And I feel more energized than I feel in any, any other frame, of, particularly after maybe day four, the states of mind and body that I enter, unlike anything, you know, that's accessible to me on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And the point that I made in that newsletter is how then do you call that anti-life? If someone is just burning with energy, how do you then go, oh, I'm sorry, man, but that's anti-life. Uh, you know, you're wrong. It's like, well, you're, you're just, you've just got thoughts. You've just got thinking. You're just, you've got feelings towards different things because of the underlying beliefs that you have about life and about maybe other cultures and other religions. And therefore you look at um, another religion, then you have uh, an unpleasant feeling about it come up. And then you construct some words and concepts on top of that unpleasant feeling. Then you mistake that for being an objective truth or judgment about the thing that you're talking about, rather than recognizing if what it is, which is a subjective uh, reaction to something you, that you're largely not aware of. But from my perspective, it is the most pro-life experience that I could possibly have. There is nothing physiologically anti-life about that experience, you know, that, that I've ever had in recent times. So it's, it, here's another uh, difference. So, so when you're involved in online discourse and you're involved in passing things out uh, philosophically using concepts and words, you need to be very aware of uh, your underlying feelings and emotions and uh, underlying beliefs that animate them and how you process information that's coming in. Because, uh, yeah, as I say, in, in those states, in those deep, deep Zen states of meditation, it's anything but anti-life. 
And this really paints a good demarcation between the idea of thinking and the idea of doing. Because if Zen meditation is anything, if Zazen is anything, it's doing, it's pure doing. Actually, well, it's pure, it's pure doing non-doing because you're not really doing anything, but you're still doing something. So it's kind of like this strange existential paradox. The one thing it isn't is it's not thinking. You're observing thinking, but you're not, you know, you're not thinking as such. And so the difference between the two things is never as pronounced as it is during Zazen, I don't think. So how do you reconcile that? Well, I don't bother reconciling it now because I know philosophically, I understand that you could say, well, Buddhism is anti-life because you just go and sit in a cave and you just do all these different things. But I also know the feeling in my body. The feeling in my body is just absolute aliveness that I get from very few other things. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile? You're using it as a tool, not escape. So that's the first thing, you know, it's a tool. True, true. But even, even as an escape, I don't think you would even get to that point. I don't think you would get it. Like you just wouldn't even have it. I think it just, this kind of, to summarize this, this is an example of uh, one of the principles of bio-individual method, bio-individual philosophy is that of self-experimentation, you have to do the thing and see what happens. Find what works, change it, find something else. Uh, You have to do the thing. So a lot of people criticizing anything, often people who haven't done the thing or they haven't done the thing for very long. So they don't know. So they can say something's on your life. You haven't done it. How do you know? Something could on the surface, all the wrapping around it, all the conceptual wrapping around something might be very one thing, but the actual technique inside it is very different or has a different effect. So you don't know until you experiment. <laughs>